I think technically it's the afternoon by a few seconds. So good afternoon, East Coast, and good afternoon, West. Good morning, West Coast. Uh, this is another amazing. They're all in amazing interviews, but I've got Dr. Drew in the house. I know my mother is watching, and she's saying, "My boy has finally made it. He's interviewing Dr. Drew." Um, in the house, Dr. Drew, in person. Going to take some questions at the end of this from our locals community, but uh, for those who don't know, Viva Fry, Montreal litigator turned Floridian rumbler at the local studio now. Uh, been doing a lot of these in-person interviews in the studio. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. And I have an amazing guest today, Dr. Drew, who people might not know your real name is, well, your full name is Dr. Drew Pinsky. Yes, that's my real name. Born and, in, like from birth, real name. David Drew Pinsky. Drew Pinsky, to be really wild about it. But yeah, I used that name, Dr. Drew, because I started doing radio in 1984. And I really didn't want anybody to know it was me. I thought I was doing community service. I didn't want to be accused of promoting myself or anything. And this was deep into the AIDS pandemic. And uh, Anthony Fauci at the time was coaching us young physicians to go out there and educate about this thing that we had just started calling AIDS like a year before. It was grids before that. And I was what, deep what, in it. Deep what did in grids it. mean? gay-related intestinal disease syndrome. And it was, it, we didn't have a causative agent yet. Soon we were calling it HTLV-3, if you remember that, but you were too, you were too was, young was, for all that. I was one year old Oh at my that God, time. the term safe <laughs> sex hadn't been coined yet. And yet we were talking about condoms very early and, and no one was talking to young people about this. Nobody, because the American culture assumed adolescents not having sex. And yet we had just been through the sexual revolution. I had just been an adolescent and I'm here to tell you that was wrong. So I could, I knew what they were up to and I thought, well, somebody's got to talk to them. There's a ton to unpack in what you yes, just said already, yes. but we're going to back it up all the way okay. to the beginning. Uh, why am I here? No, well, okay. Why are you here? I'm here, because, <laughs> I'm here because I'm giving you a talk to a pharmacy group in Orlando. I'm here to see Viva Fry. I'm quite serious about that. One of the goals of coming down here was, I was going to say hi to Dave Rubin who skipped out of town and I said, well, I've got to see Viva. I got to meet him in person finally after all this time. And we were going to have dinner, but I got too busy because I'm working on a television show with a star entertainment. It's, I believe it's going to be called Health Uncensored. Uh, it'll be on Fox Business. So that's coming up. Look for that. Dr. Drew, that's not what we're supposed to remind the world oh, that you're here Oh, we're supposed to remind the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> got, so my wife's going to kill me. <laughs> so we, I am going to be on October 28th. Let me say this direct to camera out here. Get rid of that one. Let's go over here. October 28th. There we go. Thank you. October 28th, uh, I will be at the San Jose Convention Center with uh, RFK Jr. and Asim Malhotra, and we're going to be talking about the excesses of, um, you know, the capture of medicine and food supply and our agriculture. I, I am not... Um, and a expert in that area, but I'm fascinated by that topic. RFK Jr., my first interview with him, he sort of alerted me to this, and I thought, oh my God, I, I see what you're talking about. And so I've been gravely concerned about it ever since. But this is, please get your tickets. Uh, you can get it at... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at drdo.com slash something. Oh, uh, well, I say, if, if you go to the interwebs and you look up Reclaiming Food and Medicine... Oh my God. Uh, and we got RFK Jr. This has got San Jose Civic Center, I guess, is October 28th. Susan, text me. Uh, then you got Dr. Vanda Shiva. Yes. Vandana Shiva. Um, I'm just excuse. Uh, sorry, everybody. Dr. Drew Pinsky and Dr. Asim Malhotra. So that was, may I say, your your wife, she said, don't let him forget to, that's, you know, to yes, put I the know. message out there. Well, the two things I was supposed to promote. That was, and, that was one. And uh, the other is on. No <laughs> We're both. I would say we're going to get into Dr. Drew's age in a second. But uh, no, November. We, we talked about this like five minutes ago. Six, and we both forgot. 
on November 6th, um, she is producing a show at the Chelsea Market. There's a comedy club underneath. And we're going to sort of reproduce After Dark, which is a podcast I do that I've also forgotten to promote, um, with uh, Kat Timpf and Jimmy Fela from the Greg Gutfeld Show. And they're going to come and join me on stage. And please join us. That's on November 6th. It's a great venue. We've actually explored it a bit. And so if you like Kat, if you like Jimmy, if you like me, and we'll interact with the audience and stuff, it should be a lot of fun. So check Amazing. that out. But really, I want to see people on October 28th at the San Jose Convention. That's an, I think that's an important event. You don't have to be um, an advocate for any of the people that are that are that are uh, showing up for that event. You you have to be curious. You have to be interested in doing a better job. I mean, we've been through this thing. We're going to talk about this COVID thing and the excesses of that. You can start to understand when you understand kind of where the cozy relationship with our government and the regulators and the and the drug companies, things like that. Now, we're going to back it up all the way to yep. the beginning, but yep. I'm not going to spend too much time on your childhood. Uh, okay. Born and raised in California, yes. correct? Yes. Your grandparents were immigrants from the Ukraine? Ukraine, Belarus, yep. And um, your, what did your parents do? My dad was a physician. Uh, my mom had a she's a whole story. Um, she had a life before us that I didn't find out about before till I was 50. What is it? What does that uh, possibly she was, entail? She was married to a silent <laughs> film star, had a stepson, lived, uh, you know, and during that time was, was, she was an opera singer and then sang in Vegas for years, but had a film career and a television career and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, actually was in film noir and that's where she's most you know, people. She has a fan base from the film noir era that's very and cool. uh, very interesting. And then she became a housewife and, that was that so and siblings wise are you I have a sister a sister mm -hmm. what does she end up doing in life she is really was a paralegal but is really raising kids so you know it's interesting to me my, my wife's another good example of this i mean she we had triplets right and so she was thank god she was in the home raising these kids but now that we're on the other side of that she is like becoming you know a professional in her own in her own right uh, it's amazing to see that. So you, I, I think, you know, this, we went through this period with women were told they could be all things to all people all the time. Can't, you have to, everything in life, you kind of has to be done in stages, you know, and, and you have to kind of pay attention to that. So, and I said, now we, we've been in the car together. We drove down, we've been in the car for an hour. Some of the stuff we've discussed. And I said, some stuff I'm going to have to ask you live because Wikipedia, not for the detailed stuff, just said you had three kids, triplets. Yes. And I made the joke to you in the car was everyone was there hormones or what do they call it fertility um, campaign fertility. always was always uh, almost never are they natural well, but in the early 90s there was a lot of super multiples because they hadn't figured out how to control that yet and they routinely implanted five embryos if they had them because that they at the time felt that increased the probability of one and so there were a lot of triplets did it take them to figure out that with five embryos it increased the likelihood to two or three or they knew that that was happening too <laughs> that was obvious but they didn't know what to do with it i don't know what they're doing now to increase the implantation rate but so it, it, to me it sounded like the episode of the simpsons when manjula was getting like the stuff from everybody the doctor her yep, husband Clomid. Uh, so triplet kids and that was it you know, obviously after that no yes. more kids uh, and now people might not know this. I don't know which camera I look into. People might not know look this. Look for Dr. that tally. Drew that is an actual doctor yes. and still still practicing. So yep. what, what is your field of expertise or what are you a doctor in? So this is a long story, right? So uh, I was trained in internal medicine. I ended up being chief of an internal medicine, uh, chief resident in a residency program. I ended up teaching internal medicine for a lot of years. Uh, along the way, I started moonlighting in a psychiatric hospital. So I'm board certified in internal medicine uh, and taught medicine. Board and, certified internal, internal medicine. Internal medicine. And that means... 
I mean, like, what's, general what's medicine. medicine, everything that doesn't involve a knife. Okay. okay. So, so if I were going to be a, anybody who's a cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, an endocrinologist, a, a all the different subspecialty fields, you're first an internist. That's the general medicine. And then you go into the subspecialty. I was actually heading towards cardiology, okay. that, but I was moonlighting all along in a psychiatric hospital and I became fascinated with that whole world. And I became the head of their medical service department. So I got quite good at dealing with the, the medical care of psychiatric patients. A lot of the medical problems were down on the drug unit. So I was spending a lot of time down there. I got very good at drug withdrawal. People started asking me to see more drug addicts to, to get them off drugs. And uh, I watched people go from young people go from dying to amazing. And I was like, oh, what is that? I got I got to under, understand that more. So I got very involved in addiction treatment, ended up becoming the director of their addiction treatment program for like 25 years. And so okay. I was doing both general medicine, hospital medicine. Back in the day when I could do ICU and, I, you know, I, I, uh, I volunteered for the COVID uh, physician COVID team in New York, you know, when they were in the dark days of their thing, of the of the pandemic, and I was going to go to New York and work in the ICUs. And they, I went through the whole interview process, and by the time they finished assessing me, the whole thing just stopped, and they and they just ended the program. But at the time, they were going, "Well, can you put in swans? Can you put an A line? Can you do an?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I did. I did tons and tons of that." They're like. You're not a hospitalist? No. General internal medicine included all that back in the day. But I got to ask you this, and, that, and yeah. someone in our locals community had the same thought, like, why? what interest in psychiatry or, or psychiatrics? Most people want to avoid that at all costs. What Psychiatry? Well, I, I, I really was into neuros. I, I was there in the early days of neuroscience and neurobiology, and that was a lot of my focus as an undergraduate. I was a biology, you know, trained as a biologist, but neuroscience was my thing. And so all the way through medical school and later, I, I always kind of had a thing for that. I always was interested in it, the no, mind, like, the brain. No family experience with, with mental illness? That, that no, no. My, well, my mom probably did, but, but my uncle was a psychiatrist. Um, was so. he, was he, I say psychiatrists are the most either type A or cluster B. I don't know what the name is for the personalities. I've never met a, um, well, a normal psychiatrist. You, you got to remember, Amer Amer the history of American psychiatry is a book called Shrink, I would advise you to read, that chronicles the history of American psychiatry. And it's a very strange history. So in the turn of the 20th century, do you ever see the, the TV series The Nick? I have not. Oh, it's a great series about surgeons at the tw turn of the 20th century as a New York hospital. But they, in part of it, there's a psychiatric sort of a thing. And the psychiatrists then ran big hospitals and they were medically oriented. They were convinced that psychiatric illness was caused by bacteria that came from your teeth or something out of your gut and things. And they would do crazy stuff. That's how lobotomies and things got going. I, as the internist at the psychiatric hospital, was taking care of all of the aftermath of that. Believe me, it was like a museum of psychiatry. And I had patients that had cingulotomies and lobotomies and all kinds of crazy shock therapies and things. It, it was wild what psychiatry was doing. And then in the middle of the century, psychoanalysis took over American psychiatry. We were the only country other than Austria for which it took over. And it was the only legitimate practice of psychiatry was psychoanalysis. And I will just say humbly, those guys were assholes. They, they thought they knew the answer to the human experience. They knew everything. They took over the medical establishment of the government and they dismantled care of the chronic psychiatrically ill in the name of Foucault and all these, and then Gothman and all these horrible theorists that said mental illness comes from hospitals and institutions. That's why people get brain diseases. They're exposed to this stuff.
bullshit. Uh, they needed, they have medical illnesses that needed a lot of structure, but at that time they dismantled everything and without any plan for those patients. None of them had ever been exposed to a psychiatric hospital. None of these assholes. And all those patients were sent to the streets, the nursing homes, and the prisons this is where the, they remain. What year is this? Day. Late seventies, give it's or the take. 50s, the fifties, sixties, seventies. Yes, okay. and then they did. Then they set up community mental health centers, which were going to prevent mental illness. Impossible. Didn't work. They were worthless. And then Reagan closed all those in the eighties because they were abject failures. Abject failures. So anyway, the point being, well, how did I get into this? So uh, this you know, psychiatry. Your, your... So then psychiatry became. Then psychiatrists said, no, 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 wait a minute, we're doctors. These are brain disorders. And now we've now we've gone way the other way with everything's pharmacology, everything's medical, and that's good. I mean, that's great that that we're because that's the old that's the holy grail. But there are spiritual, social, other kinds of things we have to pay attention to as well. So. So you get into psychiatry now. The interplay, or at oh, least by the way, I became a, yeah, I became an assistant clinical professor in psychiatry as a result of that too. So. Okay, that's fascinating. And, and then I became you, board certified in addiction medicine. Well, that so was I, it. So now yeah. the the interplay from psychiatry, or the interplay between mm -hmm. psychiatric disorders and drug addiction. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know. So how did you get involved in that, and what is the well, like I said, interplay? so everything everything medical. A lot of the predominant medical problems were down on the drug units. I was down there. I got good at that. I got exposed to that, and I got certified in that. And uh, the fascinating thing about um, addiction is it's the crossroads of everything. It's every everything crosses there. Psychiatry, psychology, family systems, philosophy, spirituality, brain disorders, everything is medical problems all right there. And, and I loved it. And it's such an incredible, I, I love human beings and I love the human experience. I just, I, I don't understand people that aren't fascinated by us because I don't know, that's, that's what we're here for is us. Uh, and it's such a window into how our brains work when the survival system has a distorted motivation rather than survive, love your children, go to work, deal with your hygiene, all the things associated with thriving, one priority takes over, do drugs, do that drug, do that drug. And all the other systems serve this false god and you can see how they all work. They they all start functioning, but but they're serving this this distorted motivation. So everything else, thinking, feeling, interpersonal functioning, all becomes weirdly distorted, and it's a great window into the human experience. Something I we didn't even mention in the car now, but I'm sure you're following what's going on in Canada in terms of probably um, not. Well, in terms of offering, they call it medical assistance in dying, oh, yeah. euthanasia. Now they're yeah, trying yeah. to expand it to the mentally ill and yeah, to yeah. addicts. Yeah. A question to lead into this. I've had Mark Robert on a number of times. Everybody knows he's, uh, you know, had experience with addiction, recovery. Mm -hmm. And my question to him is, you know, what is addiction? And where do you draw the distinction between addiction, compulsion, bad habits versus addiction as a disease, which carries its own, I, I maybe potential problems for, for labeling? No problems. Labeling. It, it, no, okay, well, I'll, I'll get to the problem. Well, I'll get to. Um, I've, I never, I've never met an addict that complained about stigma. Ever. Families complain about stigma. Addicts complain about not getting drugs. <laughs> That's all they're concerned when I say, with. When I, when my question let me just let me just yeah. so addiction, I, I use a loose definition. It's oh it's it's you know, we've we've parsed it into many different categories in the DSM five 
primarily for research purposes and treatment purposes. But the reality, the umbrella definition of addiction was established in the mid-90s, early 90s by a multidisciplinary panel, was published in JAMA. People in addiction medicine generally use this, this broad, broad definition, which is it is a biological disorder with a genetic basis. Addiction, a biological disorder with with a... Genetic basis. Okay. Treated 10,000 addicts in my day. I've sat down and tried to think of anybody that I couldn't see the family history. I came up with about four or five. I'm sure it's there, but I couldn't see it. So there's a gene. There's genetics. There's groupings. We have several candidate genes we're working with. So I I can give you some explanations of that if you want. Biological or genetic basis. The hallmark is progressive use and preoccupation in the face of consequences, work, school, finance, health, legal, consequences in those areas, yet progression, and progression is left out of everybody's understanding of the illness, especially the Canadians who are giving drugs. Even if I administer the drug, it progresses in spite of that progression, and then denial. And denial has many, many different qualities to it. It's it's so profound as the disease progresses that it really goes under the category of anisognosia. And anisognosia is a term coined by a famous neurologist named Babinski that was originally to talk about stroke patients where they, they, when they have a right-sided stroke, they lose the left side of their body and they lose the left side of the world and they're not aware of it. It's a lack of awareness of what's happening as a result of their illness. And trust me, mental illness, that is a characteristic of addiction and mental illness, which is why it is insane to meet people where they are with their addiction. You might as well meet your coma and stupor patients where they are because it's it's a it's a brain disorder with massive distortions. And you can't, if you meet people where they are, you are allowing them to die and progress. And the meet them where, where they are is sort of the California That's a social of- work term. Physicians would never do that. Never, ever, ever. Um, Okay, that's fascinating. Now, when I say that the 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 issue with the label, and of, by the way, the reason I bring up the social work thing, God bless them, social workers are wonderful, but we are running open air hospitals in our cities without doctors and nurses. It's like it's literally about right, like running an orthopedic surgery unit with physical therapists. Physical therapists are wonderful; they can't do surgery. Social workers are wonderful; they don't deal with medical illness. That's us and nurses. Homeless population, California, give or take a hundred thousand. What? That's just the city. What percentage would you would you estimate are either on drugs or suffer from mental illness? Eighty five percent. That's no doubt about that. So. And now the question is: When I said that, you know, the label of uh, referring to addiction as a disease, does that not create, on the one hand, a a sense of defeatism in the patients? No. Why? If If I say you, if I say you have depression and it's an illness in your brain, is you defeated? It, well, on the one hand, maybe, but on the other hand, I'll say, okay, good. If it's a disease, then just give me the give me the drugs the tr- that I need I, sure, to I'll get off the, the drugs. I'll give you the treatment. Sure, you have to go to these programs. You have to do these work. You have to. But the part of the disease is you're unwilling to surrender. You fight it. That's part of the illness. And until you surrender to the treatment for the illness, you just want to be. Really, what's under that is you want to be fixed so you can keep doing drugs. Remember, all priorities are superseded by the desire to use all priorities, including survival itself. And so that's why people start flirting with nearly dying. And if that gets through their anisognosia, then they become willing to work, to do the work. Okay, fascinating. So, so where is the biology? So so where people get hung up and with the illness of addiction. So what, what? Let's let's put it this way. How do you define a disease? Define disease for me. A, a disease we would 
presumably, you would assume it's in your genetics. I guess you're, you're well, predisposed for a disease. In somehow genes are involved, yes. Even well, if it's I've, just, I've always struggled with disease versus uh, virus, for example. Like when they refer to COVID as a disease, I always I was confused by the label. I don't actually know how to distinguish between any form of an illness and a disease, but a disease is something you would think is... The illness and disease are the same word. So you say something beyond your control that is either... Well, now that you make me ask the questions, I was going to say beyond your control, uh, let, let a matter me, of genetics or a matter of environment. You get cancer from bad air quality. So you're correct. And so I've, I've asked this question in medical schools in front of fellows and things. And no, there's, there's a, nobody has definition. Nobody thinks about this. I think about it because everybody has an opinion about whether addiction is or is not a disease, yet none of those people can define what a disease is. So we can decide whether addiction is or is not a disease. So what is, how do I know disease? What is disease, right? A disease, I mean, you, you got the, the gene things, environment part, well, you right? You say a disease is something beyond your control, um, whereas- you, um, Beyond your control, I mean, you can but cause then you can, a But disease. then you can get, that's the thing, you can get lung cancer yeah. because you smoke, in yeah. which case you still have a disease that comes from a bad habit, but no one would refer to the smoking as the disease. It would be the behavioral choice that could lead to a disease. The environment, right, leads to the, the behavior. So the environment and the genes, not everybody that smokes gets cancer, right? So gene environment interaction, always, always, right? I mean, if a piano falls on your head, you have to have the genes for having a head. I mean, genes are always involved somehow, even if it's just, if your arm gets pulled off, you have to have an arm, whatever. And environment, sometimes more involved than not, but always gene environment interaction. That results in abnormal physiology. We call that pathophysiology, abnormal biochemistry, right? So how do you know if there is pathophysiology? How would you recognize, how would I recognize it as a doctor? I don't know. Okay. I would see signs and symptoms, right? And because I've studied this constellation of pathophysiologies, I know when these particular signs and symptoms appear, that's the physiology causing the signs and symptoms. It's studied. And we know something about the gene environments that create that pathophysiology. Then what happens to those signs and symptoms? They manifest. Okay. Over time. Over time. And what happens over time? I would have failed this test, Dr. What, what Drew. If I have a cold, what if I have a cold? What happens over time? Well, it'll get worse and then presumably it'll heal itself. It resolves. What if I have lung cancer? That will not you will necessarily heal, that'll demise, heal itself with demise. Death. And that, what if I have emphysema? That'll be degenerative. And chronic. Yeah. So it, there's, we call that a natural history. So there's a natural history, a predictable natural history based on our study of the gene environment, pathophysiology, signs and symptoms progressing in a predictable pattern that we know. What am I trying to do to that natural history? Me as a doctor. Resolve it. Make it better. Improve it. We call that treatment. Okay. So gene environment interaction, abnormal physiology, manifesting in signs and symptoms that progress in a pattern, natural history, with a predictable response to treatment. Why is it predictable? Because we study it. We try to find the best treatment for that natural history. Explain to me where addiction does not fit that model. Um, the way you describe it, uh, yeah, the way you describe it actually seems to fit a definition of Disease. disease. Right. So people get a little freaked out because the disease is in the brain. I guess people get freaked out because they, they, at some point at the most fundamental level, believe the disease begins with a conscious choice. Now, uh, now and I've known people who have had mental we, illness triggered by the decision uh, to take drugs. But the, that's a separate question. The, the, so now you're asking a different question. 
why did people do drugs in the first place? Because I would get this all the time. I would give these lectures to families all over the, all the time. And they would go, okay, 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 it's a disease. And I, we actually know exactly what's going on in the brain. We know exactly where it occurs. We know exactly how it occurs. We know the epigenetics. We know the gene candidates that, that cause it. We know a shit ton about the biology of this thing. Uh, and, the, and I have lectures where I explain that. And people go, okay, okay, okay. But why did they do drugs in the first place? They're pissed because people who are addicts do terrible things. They make people suffer, not because they're terrible people, because this distorted motivation makes them do horrible shit and people get pissed and they want to blame them. They want to be angry at them. And so if you explain that there's a biology going on in their brain, now they are responsible for their recovery. And to the extent that they don't do recovery and let's say they go out and drive a car and kill somebody, well, that's not me anymore. That's the legal system. You could have you could have listened to me before. You didn't. You killed somebody. You're going to jail. Sorry. But early on, why do you do drugs? Okay. Why does somebody reach for a drug? There's various reasons. But in my world, in my world, if you have addiction bad enough to see me, you had childhood trauma. Childhood trauma is is the rocket fuel. It's the inciting yeah. influence, and and what it causes, and we know a lot about that biology too, about the dysregulation caused by childhood trauma of various types. And we went through a pandemic of childhood trauma. Well, that's so that's in the seventies, seventies, eighties, and nineties, really. Wait, hold on. What, the seventies, eighties, and nineties because of the childhood trauma. We went through a pandemic of that. I watched it in real time on Loveline. I watched it come on. I watched it in the psychiatric hospital. I saw it. I saw it happen, and there it was. What le I mean, what is the threshold for something to be qualified as childhood trauma? That's a great question, which is essentially a, a, a severe violation of boundaries, often body boundaries, sexual abuse, but the fundamental experience is helplessness. The, 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 the sense in the child that going on being is not possible. So it literally shatters the upper regulatory li limits of the brain's regulatory system. So they become dysregulated, parts of them get walled off. There's actually a biology of you know, disconnecting called somatoform and, and, and psychological dissociation. And the other thing that happens is they ruptures trust. And trust is necessary for closeness. Closeness is necessary for building the emotional regulatory system in a normal fashion. So they are now dysregulated. They can't go back to the interpersonal context where the regulation is built and they're searching for solutions the rest of their life. They find their way to a thing that works, a substance. There's no talking them out of it at that point. That's actually fascinating. Now, you're living in California, which has its own problems now. Um, you un you've understood the genesis of those problems. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the solution and where are they going in we, terms of that solution? You need to allow doctors and nurses to help people with brain disorders, period. And we will do, we have no problem. It's just you take the patients and you go, you're not in your right mind. I know how to talk to them to get them. And you're coming with me. You're going to, we're going to put you in a place. We're going to give you a place. And we're going to make in, you feel better. It, it, well, I say involuntarily, we were talking no, about this. No, there's nothing about it. It's just, you're, you're, they're not in their right mind. That, there are ways to motivate people into treatment. It's what I did all the time. And to go, oh, we're going to meet you where you are. They're, it's like meeting a coma patient well, we, where they I, are. We, we, you know, we say that the, the old trope is, Mentally ill people don't know they're mentally ill. Correct. That's called anisognosia. Anisognosia. And so the idea that you'll try to rely on their self-assessment of, of desires. It's allowing them to destroy themselves and, their, and die. 
What is the state it's of California? It's, it's, it's manslaughter. Let's call it what it is. You tell me it's not manslaughter. You're actively allowing somebody. No, people like me know that there's things to be done and you're preventing that from happening. Well, I'll, I'll call we'll, that manslaughter. We'll take it one step further. In Canada, I'm calling it state-sanctioned murder because what they're allowing to do is the people who are out of their right mind yeah. make the decision to end their own lives so long as they oh. get the certification of two doctors. Yeah, that's awful. You the know, Mental illness and drugs. But in California now, is it, it's still going in the wrong direction policy. No, it's slow. I, I Just last week, there was a slight turn where they expanded conservatorships. That's a slight move in the right direction. So somebody's waking up. Somebody's getting through to them. Uh, I have had this discussion with my wife, um, uh, who's a neuroscientist. I'm sure everybody yes. knows out there. But is there a point of no return in terms of the damage that... Um, addicts may have done to their brains in terms of there will be no there is no healing at the point of where they're at it can happen same thing with schizophrenia by the way schizophrenics if you treat them early do great they can be returned to a relatively stable life you let them sit out in the street for five years they they're never retrievable they, they never come back that's now here's the insanity if a dementia patient Somebody with Lewy body dementia, which looks like a schizophrenic, wanders out into the street, and I don't help them. It's an it's an it's an all points bulletin. A, de a, a de demented and adult is correct. now missing, and I'm guilty of patient abuse. I've actually abused somebody by not treating them. Yet a patient with a separate diagnosis, same symptom complex, who, by the way, if we intervene early, will get better. You're not allowed to touch them. The dementia patient is going to progress no matter what. The schizophrenic, you can prevent them from a life of destroyed life. Same thing with drug addiction. How insane is that? When you verbalize it like that, oh I my think God, many I people I'm, are I'm, I'm driven crazy by it all day, every day. Oh my God, you're going to make me talk about the opiate crisis too. Well, this we're, stuff, we're, this we're, stuff makes me insane. We're, we're going to get there as well. I mean, I'll just say that my viewers know that in the early days of my legal career, we used to do these things called motions for confinement. You'd yeah. go to court, have a doctor say this person yeah. is a danger or risk to themselves or others. Yeah. They need to be confined. We get 24 to 72 hours and yeah. then we reassess. Yes. Um, you can't do anything in 72 hours, by the way, with these patients. Well, I mean, you dope them up and then they they get totally... I, I it, you can't do anything. It's not nothing. It's a, it's a waste of time. Um, no, when you explain it that way, that if you have a senile, demented, elderly person, they go Not missing. Not even a senile, and then they get... just a Lewy body dementia, which looks like schizophrenia, it's, but it's a progressive dementing illness. If you don't intervene, you're, you, you could get in big trouble. Okay, the opioid crisis, because that, oh, I, that, that I, other than the astronomical numbers. I'm have a stroke here. Well, 70,000 to 100,000 a year at the peak of the opioid crisis we're dying. Right now it's 100,000 a year, right now. That we, we, the, in the United the, States. The framing in the media is that the opioid crisis since the, uh, what was the Sacklers company? The the one that was, yeah the, uh, since they've been penalizing whatever, that the, the opioid crisis is sort of not over, well, the, but being the, dealt with. The physician um, component of it is under control. Okay, in fact, so it's gone too far. It's actually gone too far. Okay, so ba back it up pain. all the way to the beginning. The opioid crisis. That, all right, uh, so here's how it went down. There's a, there's grave misunderstanding about it because everybody wants to blame the drug companies, which I'm all on board for. The drug companies are duplicitous. They have plenty of guilt. They should have suffered at the hands of, you know, they should have. Purdue. Given, it was Purdue Pharma. Yeah, exactly. Purdue did tons of horrible things, but they were breathing wind into the sails of the problem caused by us. My profession did it. So here's what happened. It's a long story. Well, is it okay I, I, if I, I tell the whole story? Please do. So what I'm going to tell the pharmacy group next uh, on Thursday, Friday, when I go out and talk to them in Orlando. Essentially, I'm going to I'm going to shorthand it a little bit. We had an opioid crisis following the Civil War. Morphine sulfate was invented. The hypodermic needle was invented. The Civil War is in the, the American Civil, Civil, War, Civil War. The American okay. Civil War in the 1860s. 
following that a huge wave of opioid use came onto this country and a craze of um proprietary cures all contained opium and laudanum and cocaine all kinds of stuff and by the early part of the 20th century the opioid crisis hit a high pitch all being 100% distributed by the physicians the Harrison Narcotic Act came in actually 20,000 physicians were sanctioned under that act several hundred were imprisoned because of the Harrison Narcotic Act for excessive opiate prescribing. So whenever the legal profession steps in with doctors, we, we freeze, we freak out. We don't know what to do. We're too busy to pay attention to what you guys are doing, you lawyers. <laughs> so I, I was one of the good ones, I, I hope. And so we froze and we didn't prescribe any opiates for like 50 years. Now the 60s come along, the 70s, and suddenly we're having people with cancer survive long periods of time with horrible pain. The pain medicine movement comes in and says, this is ridiculous. You have opiophobia. You're afraid of opiates. We need to prescribe them for these cancer patients. Totally legitimate. A thousand percent legitimate. Couldn't agree more. But then these same pain specialists thought, huh, we should be able to take care of all... There should never be pain in this country again. All pain. And the answer is in this the poppy plant. That's the answer. And we know the answer. We are enlightened. You guys are afraid of opiates. And a couple of, there was some, a famous letter called the Porter Jick letter, which was ridiculous, but it became the foundation for prescribing opiates to anybody in pain at any time. Now, then the legal profession came in. There were in North Carolina, Florida, and California, there were criminal and civil actions for under-prescribing of opiates, patient abuse, because you didn't prescribe enough opiate. We all heard about it. We froze. We sent everything pain to the pain specialist, and pain specialist said, that's right. Then... <laughs> They, they be so it's, it's like a, a, a vicious, not a vicious circle, but just like a pendulum that keeps swinging back from Correct. one end to the other. Correct. When they were over-prescribing opiates in the wake of the Civil War, people getting injured yeah. and works on the battlefield, yeah. did they, when, when did they start learning of the nefarious effects of opiates? It took a while. In fact, they were, they were prescribing it to treat alcoholism. Cocaine to treat opiate addiction, <laughs> opiates to treat. I mean, there was out of control. It was totally ridiculous. And of course, then there were advocates then too. You are just afraid. We need more opiates. Give it to them. That's what they want. What, what do you? Who is? Yeah, a little withdrawal, but so keep giving it to them so they don't go into withdrawal. It was nutty. Same thing now, except now here. This was the pernicious part. And keep your eye on COVID if you want to know how that happened. Same thing happened in the opiate crisis. These evangelical physicians. There were several of them that got into the got into the world. Think Deborah Burks with COVID, evangelized that pain should never be experienced in this country. In fact, it's so important. Pain should be the fifth vital sign. Do you remember that pain, the fifth vital sign? That I don't care what the patient's pulse is. It could be zero. I want to know what their pain assessment is. I got in lots of trouble for my heroin addicts in withdrawal experiencing some discomfort and refusing to give them heroin. I was in trouble for that. That's how insane it got. So they got control first of the VA, who adopted pain as the fifth vital sign, then the professional societies, then the regulatory agencies, then the state medical boards. 
and they all signed on. The Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation, if you didn't put pain as the fifth vital sign, your hospital would not get accredited. So every one of these regulatory agencies jumped on board because of evangelical positions, physicians, not the drug companies. The drug companies were there. Well, they with, saw with, they saw their opportunity afterwards. <laughs> well, yeah, come go talk about it. Yeah, let me put you in touch with people. Let me just they were the, facilitating let it. Let me ask the totally ignorant question. The yeah. first four vital signs? Uh, the uh, uh, Temperature, pulse, blood pressure, respirations. And then pain. And pain assessment. I, I've never, I mean, I look, I've, I haven't been to the hospital in a while. But they got you know, rid of that. Well, they ask like, what, what, on a scale of one to 10, it's like, well, if I've got a high threshold, then w what does that mean? And if I'm willing to tolerate That's why pain... they turned it to a little happy face scale, <laughs> yeah. from unhappy face to very happy face. My patients in drug addiction had kind of unhappy faces, normal for somebody in drug treatment. I was hit by the Department of Mental Health, my hospital administration, the insurance companies who were also in on it. Everybody was in on it. And I was fighting it like an MFR for 15 years and i was told i was an opiophobe i was a dinosaur i was dangerous i was interested in patient suffering it was unbelievable and it's one of the reasons i actually left the treatment field because my patients i would get them all cleaned up get them going they'd be doing great they'd be thriving but because they're drug addicts their thinking is messed up and they would go yeah i, I yeah my back I, I gotta go see that pain guy again not really not even thinking that they want to do drugs it's just I'm having some pain. That's how that's how pernicious the well, disease is. That's it's an amazing thing also in terms of framing and labeling is you give it a medically prescribed uh, labeled term and then the people feel more comfortable taking it. Whereas if it, well, you know if it were a street drug doing the exact same thing with the exact same components, it would have a stigma that people would not feel comfortable. Just yeah, not for addicts. Addicts just cheaper, better. They'll they'll go for it. But 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 they can get it for free from the drug. You know the insurance company pays for it. It's like so they go to the pain guy and the pain says literally. Why are you listening to those people? They're brainwashing you. I told you, you're going to need these medicines the rest of your life. Dead in two weeks. Do you know how many of my patients were killed that way? 500? 500. And it got to be too much for me. It got to be too much. And, uh, and by the way, treating those patients, the chronic pain patients with opioid addiction stuff, it's very difficult. And now we thank God I have Suboxone, which really, really good for the chronic pain group. But back then... Oh my God! So the, the pendulum swings back. Uh, doctors who now too much. Now you can't. People with pain can't get painkillers. It's well, really crazy. But so then because I mean, they don't know addiction, they don't understand addiction. That's the biggest problem. Well, the, I mean that, that I guess is a question. Without getting too far into it, uh, I haven't. I didn't get through the entire painkiller docudrama series. I don't really like the docudrama, but yeah, I understand what happened. Um, they understood the addiction, and I guess the problem was with Purdue, the Sackler family, going into. Uh, downplaying or outright lying about the addictive uh correct i, I had the oxycon people sit in my office. i had the xanax people say the same thing years before sackler upjohn sat in my office B before we understood how addictive xanax was i had patients developing seizures and the upjohn patient guys comes in and goes Oh, they just have a seizure disorder. That's just your, they, if they'd stayed on the medicine, you would have controlled the seizure. And that's all them climbing the walls like that. That's just their anxiety, underlying anxiety. Our drug doesn't do that. There's no withdrawal from Xanax. That was in 1987. The Sackler thing wasn't until the 90s. And I, in the 90s, had Sackler guys, you know, that company produced sitting in my office going, we now have the non-addictive opiate. And you know what I said to them? Bullshit. I said, get the fuck out of my well, office. I mean, I, 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 get the fuck out of here. Even because you a, are full of shit. I'm not even going to discuss this with well, you. Well, from a very 101 perspective, you know, people say like melatonin is not addictive, but it'll help you sleep. Anything that helps you feel better and do what no, you want to do. No, I, I, not I, true. Okay, so that, no, so 
What is, where is addiction? I think anything that would Addiction is pain. the medial forebrain bundle. You have to have an activation of the shell, the nucleus accumbens, and not everything does that. Okay. And you have to do it in an extra physiological level. It's, there's two systems in the brain. There's wanting and liking. You're talking about the liking system. Liking doesn't have to trigger the wanting. And the wanting in addiction takes over. So even when you don't like it anymore, you still want it. Amazing. Okay, so now you, um, you practice, you're still practicing. This yep. is one heck of an amazing uh, analysis of your history. <laughs> you have a radio voice. I've, I've, yeah. Now I'm putting it together, and you've been on the radio as well for... 35 when, years. 35, so when did you make the decision, and what was that decision like to sort of interplay public personality yeah. with, pri it, with it practice? Was, like I said, I didn't use my real name. I was always like, no, 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 no. And this no, is no. back before everyone could just easily Google and find out right. exactly who you That's were. That's right. So... So I thought I was doing community service. I did radio for free for 10 years. I thought I was helping with the AIDS pan. I was dealing with AIDS patients like crazy. I mean, I was really deep in it. I was there when we opened the first boxes of AZT. I can tell you what actually happened and how much good that did. Whatever the excesses were of getting it there, it helped at the time. But anyway, um, so I, RFK and I crossed horns on that a few well, times. Well, I, 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 I would love, I don't, I know that I don't have enough of a knowledge base. I just was I, there. I read, I, I read I the was, book. You know, I know, but I was there. You know what I mean? I lived these things. But anyway, so 10 years of free. Uh, then all of a sudden they decided they wanted to do it five nights a week. And at that point I was practicing medicine 14 to 16 hours a day. Speaking of having a wonderful spouse, I don't know how she, I do not know how she put up with that. Um, and like a, a day off on the weekend, I still worked for eight hours on my days off. I would go to nursing homes and things. Is that her texting me? Somebody's texting me. No. Uh, and, um, and, and this is you know, patient, you're, you're seeing patients day 60 in a day, 60 patients a day in, in, in ICU hospital, outpatient medicine, psychiatric hospital, addiction unit. I, I just, all day. I loved it. I loved it. I thought I was doing something so important. That, that was the thing about medicine back then. It felt so important. And um, I just, I just indulged in it. I just was, couldn't, I could not do it any different way. I didn't know how else to do it. And uh, my health suffered. I'm sure my wife wasn't happy with it. My kids bring it up now, you know, in retrospect. I, I don't want to be glib, but I say some people are addicted to work. And I oh, don't I'm, wanna, working, I don't I'm a workaholic for sure, for sure. Um, much better these days. I, now I just kind of like it. Then I was addicted. Um, but what was my point? What were you saying about uh, that? In thing? terms of radio and... Oh, and, so, and, so and the whole while, I was like, no, 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 no. And, and uh, I mean, I liked having a public, you know, outlet. I like public speaking. I like that kind of stuff. But I, I just was like, always kind of uncomfortable. And um, then these guys came around and wanted to do TV. I'm like, well, I don't really know what that is. But... I can probably squeeze Friday from noon to eight and Saturday from noon to eight. And if you can do it there, uh, I guess we can do this TV, whatever that is. And that's where we did it. We did it Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon. And that was the MTV show. And then things kind of exploded. And I was like, okay, that's interesting, you know, and, and I had to, because the radio then also exploded, I had to dial down my evening work. <laughs> I have to go home for dinner. I'd have to go out to radio afterwards. And it kind of it kind of helped me curtail some of my workaholism. So now I was doing medicine seven days a week, but not 12 hours a day. I was doing it like 10 hours a day. And, um, you know, still getting up at five in the morning and still kind of nutty. And uh, just didn't really, I don't know, I was just always just like, okay, well, if you guys have something else you want me to do, I'll try it. 
And then these guys came along and they said, we want to do this thing called celebrity rehab. And I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> it's like, come on. And you want, you want to take cameras into a psychiatric hospital? Zero probability. And they go, let us talk to the hospital. I, say, I said, okay, talk to the hospital. They laughed them out of the room. Like, You've got to be kidding. You can't even bring a camera near a psychiatric hospital. And uh, then they were like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I, I don't know. And, and, I, and I thought, God, you know, I... I know the psychiatrist that runs the residential program up the hill. I bet I could take my hospital team, use their policies, procedures, and licensing, and my team, and insert it into their unit and run a program. And I went up there and talked to psychiatry. He's like, yeah, that will be fantastic. Oh, so exciting. How fun. And I was like, okay. Anyway, I kept pitching it, and then VH1 showed interest. And then I just was like, no, 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 no I can't do this. I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable. And uh, Bob Forrest, did you ever see Celebrity Rehab? The guy with the no. hat and the glasses. He, people know him as he, he's been treated 25 times. He was a famous drug addict. Now he's a wonderful treatment professional. And uh, he came into my office one day and he goes, you know, we were treating a lot of celebrities at the time. And uh, he goes, you know, I'm so sick of these these media outlets talking about our patients as though they're on a on a on a vacation or they're doing it just as an excuse for their behavior. These people are sick and they're working hard. We need to do a TV show where we show that. I was blown away. I was, I really, to this day, thought maybe somebody put him up to it because I went into hiding. I was not following up on anything because I just was very uncomfortable. And I go, Bob, um, somebody had approached me about doing this and there, there's an interest out there. And he goes, he goes, we have to do it. And he smacked his hands under knees and he walked out of the room. And I thought, okay, if that's his instinct, I'll kind of keep going forward. And that was Celebrity Rehab. So. That's fascinating. Now, yeah. hold on. You, you did mention something. I want to go back to mm. the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing thing. I can understand my own life backwards based on my own neuroses. And I remember I was a kid in the 80s, and I had an irrational fear of, of AIDS. Like We just, did that. Well, and, and, and we were proud was, of it. It was, it was, it was. I mean, in retrospect, so bloody irrational. Where I was like, I, if, yeah. if you if you sit on a toilet seat yeah. or, or shake no, no, hands. Well, we were trying not to do that, um, but we were so trying you, to get you to understand the sexual kind. We were trying to do things. Yeah, I was a Tony Fauci was my hero. The all of my career, I just saw until... the little, little record scratch <laughs> recently. But 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 he. I at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone that criticized me at the beginning. I was just trying to calm people down. And, and you're talking the, the, are you talking the AIDS pandemic? No, no, talking I'm talking about COVID. COVID. But, and, okay. and by the way, just so you know, what you will not find online is what I actually said. Every time I said, stop it, that you, we, what I would say was the following. I said, we just went through a pandemic with H1N1. It killed 300,000 people and you don't even know it happened. I, 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 and I now, absolutely. and now you're going to close the world down over this thing. I said, it's going to be bad, but just listen to Fauci and the CDC. They will get us through it. I, remember, I said it that was every in, time. H1 they N1, cut that all off of everything I said. H1N1 was 2009, give or take. Correct. And I, I re had it. It was terrible. I, oh I don't God. remember anything. I remember my wife was pregnant. Oh my pregnant. God, it was we, bad. Um, but don't get back. I By mean, the just, way, it was extra bad in Canada because Toronto had a huge outbreak in the, uh, in the Chinatown. And I remember I was doing... I was doing some tele some movies, some some media up there, and I went running that day. And people were like, "You're not going to run through Chinatown, are you?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to run through Chinatown," and I did. Unreal. I don't remember. I don't. I don't know. I was working as a lawyer, so I yeah. know that I was in my own bubble, and I yeah. don't remember anything. Apparently, I took the whatever the whatever the flu shot was for 2009 because it was mandatory. Yeah, well, that was, was well after the epidemic. I guess 2008 was the epidemic, though. Um, but now bring it back to the AIDS epidemic because yeah. that's something we're having lived through. So, that so it's the be point crazy. is. The, the techniques of the AIDS epidemic 
we congratulated ourselves for. That you mean the technique as in the fear-mongering? The fear-mongering. Okay, but just and as the a overstating. Living, living through it. You're, yeah. you're in an era where people start developing an illness and L nobody knows what it is. Let me just finish this one thought. Absolutely. It was not appropriate for this latest pandemic. It was the wrong approach. The, the media works differently. The public health works differently. Social media it works differently. It was the wrong thing and they should have adjusted they should still be adjusting course well but that's a different Drew, it, topic it was the wrong thing if you think they didn't do it on purpose i'm they now, did do it on purpose oh, okay no then then it wasn't the wrong thing it was the right thing for the wrong reasons i remember that showing the videos of people dropping dead giving online classes that don't see those anymore people dropping dead from COVID in the streets like why didn't, aren't we seeing those videos anymore because it never happened but, <laughs> but but let's go back to hiv yeah. and the thing so what well so you're in it's what late 70s I, i'm in i'm in medical school when this thing is breaking out Six, you're in medical school? 80, 80 to 84, I'm in medical school. Uh, and like, how does that materialize? People show up to the hospitals with what With what symptoms? What are Weight they... loss, diarrhea. That was within, the first thing. Within what period of time? Like uh, within short order? Well, they're not showing up until they're really sick, right? So they show up weight loss, diarrhea. Yeah. And then there's these other things that keep happening. These opportunistic infections. That's okay. the next thing they notice, which is pneumocystis pneumonia, which by the way, it took a while for them to recognize that. Kaposi's sarcoma. What's going on here? Toxoplasmosis. What's Kaposi's sarcoma? Is the that purple, of... purple, it's just a cancer that takes okay. over everything. And uh, nobody had seen Kaposi's. It was a rare illness before that. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. It was, it, listen, people that, it was, uh, the crazy thing about that epidemic is people went, I can't believe it took forever for them to figure it out. It was the most extraordinary representation of our medical system in the history of human existence that in a short period of time like seven years we came up with we defined the syndrome we came up with a causative agent and came up with a, the epidemiology and then an effective treatment it took us a thousand years to figure out syphilis a thousand years seven years whole thing getting under control that was mind-blowing which is by the way that experience being in that helped inform me when I was telling people to calm down about COVID. I kept saying, we're going to figure, we're going to get this. We'll figure it out. We'll have treatments. We'll have vaccines. I, I know it. I know how we work. I've been through this. No, you have to, you have um, to close the world. And demographically, it's politically incorrect. It was known at the time within the gay community and drug addicts, or was it not, was that not known until, I don't know, a couple of years? The in? drug addict part and the Haitian part came later. But it was gay, gay related intestinal disease syndrome. I'm, 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 I'm telling you one thing. I feel like um, very ignorant that it I had two, never, it actually people people misnome it to this day. Gay, they gay, they call it gay related immune deficiency syndrome, but it was really called gay related intestinal disease syndrome because of the because, because of, the, of the diarrhea. diarrhea. Yeah. Okay, that's that's, uh, and then we will we won't we won't get into the entire AZT and other stuff. But you've listened to the real Anthony. Or I, I will say, just listen, tell you that Anthony we opened the boxes. Look. I'm a fourth-year medical student, and I'm telling young men every day they have six months to live. It's a fourth-year medical student because there was this tidal wave of these guys, and the students had to take care of them because there were too many of them. And I was telling them they'd come up with their first episode of pneumocystis, and we'd say, you have six months to live, and we were never wrong. Now we're opening boxes on something that gave us an extra three months, three months to push it back a little bit and come up with some more treatments, which we did. It's exactly what happened. Yes, AZT was not a great treatment, but it gives a little more time well, also, to help these guys. One of the and it was something. The it argument would be that it was, it was not a great treatment, but something for those who are within six months to live, but those who are asymptomatic when it was given would have been the cause of their death and not no, the cause of their no treatment. No way, no way. 
No, if you if you took too much of it, which if you look at the the movie, even the Dallas Buyers Club movie shows the guy was overdosing on it. Yeah, you take too much, you get sick. Now, at the time, were you also noticing what would have what we now see in retrospect as the suppression of uh, non prescription or the suppression of what's the word I'm looking for uh, over the counter treatments for then, HIV? Then, yeah, no. In fact, in fact, what I saw was we were encouraging it because we had nothing. And if these guys could find something that made them feel better, please. But then what, I mean, what was but the But here's point what went bad. Okay. Those same organizations, the Dallas Buyers Club and whatnot, for years continued to say, don't listen to your doctors. They're making you sit. We have the solution. When we finally had treatment, they were undermining our ability to help people. And that was a big, big problem. Okay, interesting. And now um, Fauci was a hero, and I'm not saying this he was to my fault hero. you. Until, my hero. Uh, until now, so until COVID. Until he said, until he couldn't answer the question about whether or not people should go into large groups and demonstrate. That was the moment for me where I went, uh-oh. Because he was telling us everything else. Now, I do happen to believe you should be able to go out and demonstrate because you're outside. There's been zero transmission of COVID out of doors. I think there was one I'm part case two of an cases. Irish I beg couple. Your part. No, no, there were two <laughs> cases. There were two cases. I know an Irish couple. I read in the Irish Times. You had two cases where two they were cases. probably making out. In China. Out. <laughs> in China. Um, yeah. So now COVID hits. Your your faith in the medical system, I Enormous. guess, it had, it had not taken massive hits until recently? Or Correct. is it still... I don't know if you saw massive hits because I lived through the <laughs> opioid crisis. To me, that seemed like an, an, an anomaly. It seemed like I can't... I, what's going on here? Okay, but now so then now COVID comes I'm around. Now I'm seeing the same thing again, again. Same um, exact thing. Evangelical physician. And by people go, yeah, there's nothing wrong with being a Christian. It's not what evangelical means. Evangelical means an enthusiast, like an overly enthusiastic individual about a topic. Evangelical physicians on Deborah Burke's cases lockdowns. In the case of um, pain management, pain is the fifth vital sign. Those are evangelical positions. Are, are you, would you not think or would you not say that those are the, the results of a capture of the industry? Yes. And now, now if, I would say that. All right. And now I guess uh, now, now I'm concerned about that. Really concerned about that. And, and, and I'm concerned about it like I can't even believe I'm concerned. I, I'm concerned about the the medical journals that I've relied on my whole life. They're, they, they're, all the publications go one direction. That's never happened before. It's always a back and forth. The only major that I have found to be showing reasonable articles that have interesting alternative opinions is Annals of Internal Medicine. But doing the journal, JAMA, it's just going one way. It's, it's, it's weird. But it, I'd say for you had faith in Fauci yes. at some point. Yes. I didn't, you know, a lot of us were 40 even, years. Well, I had, a lot of us were not faith, aware. Not hero. Hero. Um, maybe, I, by the way, was, I keep I kept saying all through the pandemic, I kept saying he's going to revert to the mean. He's going to revert to the mean. There's going to be a reversion to the mean here. There has to be. He's going to he's going to come back from this somehow. I still have a weird little belief in that, and I still have some faith in that. You hear him say though, he comes out and says that natural infection. After I, I thought it was sort of a cornerstone of virology that natural infection provides the best immunity. You hear him come out and negate things which are, I presume, in the medical field, not taken for granted, but are you know, basic knowledge, non-starters, if you try to contradict them? It would, well, you'd have to show your work. Like, what, what, on what basis do you say that? I'm, I'm open to, you know, medicine, you got to be open to everything all the time. And so if somebody has an opinion, you just look at the data. Just, you, you can't, you can't 
have you got to watch your bias all the time what all we time. i mean i don't want we won't do a full dissection of your analysis of the covid response but we what were some of the what were some of the most shocking things that you say this is offensive to my uh, medical conscience in real time as you're seeing it six feet is going <laughs> to save lives do you know where that came from uh, uh someone's butt i mean i want to say like out of out of thin air thin air correct they were in a locked room in washington thinking inventing a term called social distancing which had just come around like a year before as sort of an idea no one had ever studied it really and they were like god it probably needs to be like more 30 to 60 feet but they'll never agree to that they'd probably agree to three feet we could probably get that uh, six feet six feet that's good get, sell that that's it six feet six feet never any evidence ever out of thin air and the world adopted it that that to me is like mind-blowing i am um, that's one of the many little things like that well, that i've learned by talking to people who've been canceled by the way i i interview on i do a thing called ask dr drew my wife would also kill me if i didn't promote this remember go to August, october 28th if there are more people here october 28th in san jose convention center go reclaiming food and medicine go see that me rfk jr asim malhatra please go see that and also on november 6th in new york city at the chelsea market that evening me cat temp jim Fela, Fela, jimmy Fela. Okay, maybe I can get Jim, Jim Norton up there too. I'm going to try that also. Um, Ask Dr. Drew is Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 o'clock. It's a streaming show we do. Rumble, lo uh, Locals, we do it everywhere, but it's also on YouTube. And I've been, one of the things we've been doing, I, I'm a pure free speech advocate. And as soon as somebody is canceled, my, my immediate sort of interest is I, I want to go talk to them. I want to hear what they have to say. I mean, why were you canceled? What did you have to say? And the playbook of cancellation seemed to be to go after most vigorously the people with the most esteem and the most um, significant career, you know, sort of record behind them. To me, the poster child for this was Jay Bhattacharya. Jay Bhattacharya is the poster child. This is an, you know, an extraordinary human being, an extraordinary professional, a decorated teacher. Aaron Cariotti is another one. He's the one that spearheaded Biden versus um, Missouri, Missouri versus Biden, which he's, he's, a, he's a bioethicist who lost his job at UC Irvine because he said, I don't think you have the criteria to mandate a vaccine to these young people. Those schools are going to be sued for that. I said that at, at uh, Megyn Kelly. That's my prediction for because there's going to be enough serious consequence that, that people are going to go, I, I, well, I, you we, made me do it, I'm going to sue you. We, we're going to get into it probably in a, in a little bit. Yeah. I think I think eventually the pharma companies are themselves going to get sued because it wasn't a question of them having satisfied the obligations under their contracts. I think, I predict, <laughs> I mean, they knew stuff that they didn't disclose and it was fraudulent from the beginning. And so there I, are any I, immunity. I, I'm willing to accept that they didn't. I'm willing to accept that it was an emergency and we had to, we had to get there as fast as we could and the extraordinary risks were taken. I have no problem with that. Now let's do the work. Now let's pull back. Now that the pandemic's over, but they're pushing with the same intensity. I, I, I that's the it's, part it's, I have an issue with. Well, uh, it, it, some people say it's a mistake if you think they're doing it uh, by accident, or it's on purpose if you think there's an underlying it, agenda. It feels and like hysteria. Point, it feels like hysteria. I, I, at this point, I didn't get on the bandwagon of an underlying agenda. Yeah. At this point, it, I think it is in fact just doubling down on the mistake and and. If they admit it now, then they expose themselves to more repercussions than if they just double down, I, triple I, I down. I talked to Megan Kelly about an article, which I'd just seen five days before. I thought it had just been published. Turned out it was published in July because I couldn't believe the world wasn't talking about it, which was a Hong Kong study. Okay, this drives me insane. 
Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this. Because I, I don't know where we're going right now, but I'm, I'm very gonna, curious. I'm going to tell you, the study was in circulation, which was a major cardiology journal. It studied for a year adolescent males who had myocarditis. 38 out of 100,000 got myocarditis. They got, they got, was it 38 out of 100,000? I'm, I'm forgetting the numbers. Uh, the, the no, I'm they, sorry. 38, they had 38 cases. I think the incidence is like five out of 100,000 or something in terms of how often myocarditis shows up. Again, that's being debated. I don't know that number. But this was a, this was a study on 38 adolescent males mm -hmm. who got myocarditis from the vaccine, diagnosed, established, vaccine-related, not COVID-related. And I get it. COVID causes some myocarditis too. Listen, when I, I had terrible COVID, and I was climbing some stairs with a fever of 102 and my pulse was 50, I announced right then this thing affects the heart. Of course it does. It does. Um, but in these 38 males, more than half of them had persistent myocardial damage on MRI a year out. 50% of 38. Dr. Drew, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this, that the myocardial tissue doesn't uh, heal. heal. So it, well, we, it can do lots of things. It can form a scar, and that scar can be okay in terms of my performance. But scar tissue doesn't flex and pump the way can, a heart is supposed to. But it still can affect, can it can preserve the performance, but it can be a source of arrhythmias. So now you're seeing all this literature on arrhythmias in from the vaccine. Known that for two years. I've seen it a ton. Not seen anything in elderly patients. For whatever reason, I vaccinate my elderly patients. They are vaccinated, boosted, and they're benefiting, in my opinion, because COVID is a very serious risk for them. I've seen zero side effects so far. In adolescent men and, and middle-aged well, men, I've seen a ton of side effects. I, I know you're probably going to get flack on the internet for yeah. this because people are going to say, if you're not seeing it, you're not looking for it. But what is the average age of your patient? Uh, all Medicare age. I'm probably 75. Okay. Yeah. The, and and, and multi-diagnosed. I have people with complex, multiple medical problems. I had a patient with tuberculosis who got liver failure from the tuberculosis meds and then got COVID. I was happy he was vaccinated. He would have died. He could have died easily. And I don't know how much the vaccine did, but it was enough to give me a little bit of comfort because I couldn't treat him with anything. And by the way, all this vaccine data we're looking at does not take into account the fact that we have treatments. We have molnupiravir, we have Paxlovid, and people have all kinds of early treatments they're trying, but we have fluvoxamine and budesonide have shown to be useful for treatment. All the vaccine studies do not take into account the fact that we have treatment that works. So Unfortunately, it's going to be thirteen hundred bucks for the Paxlovid, which I, so, someone in the local is going to ask, us, "Why the heck is it so expensive?" I, I, There's a good reason, I presume. It's uh, it's because it takes five years for them to make back their their um, you know they only have five years to make back their investment. Look, I'm going to ask the stupid question: Does Paxlovid actually Paxlovid actually work? I've heard works like, it, it worked, in the in the recent variants. Well, there was a year and a half ago, I was seeing a lot of rebound, and people, "Oh, it's not rebound. That's just the cytokine." It was rebound. Shut up. It was rebound. It was very different than it was a lot of upper airway stuff. It was not cytokine activation. In the recent variant this summer, man, did it work in elderly patients. Oh, my God. It worked so fast and so well. In the recent variant, like at this present moment, not so much. Not, it's not working so well. Okay. Uh, but so it depends on the variant. It seems like, again, the literature catches up with the clinical we see it in real-time clinical. The literature eventually catches up with it. It's how medicine works. Circulation article, 38 men, half of whom, more than half of them, it was like 459% or something, had persistent myocardial damage. So arrhythmias, exercise performance problems the rest of their life, 
and maybe for some of them, cardiac transplant. They will end up with cardiomyopathy. Uh, when you uh, the second one is uh, performance for the rest like of like they lives. can't run and they can't do the, they, engage in sports the way they there, want to. There's a uh, I won't say a trope, a meme, or whatever. There's an internet legend that myocarditis, your chances of being dead within five years, are fifty percent. There's some there's some wildly high number. What what does it do in terms of reduction of life expectancy? We don't know because this is the first study. This is the first study. It's one year, first study. So here's what's happening to me on the internet. People are going. It's only thirty eight men. He's only talking about half of 38. Yes, I'm talking about essentially half of the 38 for whom it was officially diagnosed, recognized with persistent problems. 20 men to save less than, far less than one per hundred thousand of an, 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 an illness not- that doesn't hurt them. And there's treatment that works. This is an illness that doesn't harm that age group. We are going to take any of them and make them chronically ill. That is anathema to the practice of medicine. That is do no harm is our first charge. And we are harming healthy people for whom we were saving them from... From, What's well, the risk reward? But how bad their their risk of COVID is way less than one per hundred thousand, while their risk from myocarditis looks like it may be very serious. Well, I mean, at, at the very least, the last statistics I heard, which were the most um, charitable, because it's coming from the government. So if you believe it, yep. was still one in five thousand. But when you say this, people have to appreciate this. And half of those will get persistent problems and that's one save, in ten thousand it's to save one in one hundred thousand less than one in a hundred thousand what would be the age point oh oh five per hundred thousand <laughs> and and the average age of that let's just 15, round it up to one and a half 15 one in a hundred thousand no no the, in terms of the saving of from from COVID. i'm looking at just 15 year olds essentially mid-adolescence okay, i'm looking at middle adolescence. um okay they don't die of COVID. unless they have some serious well, underlying I, I, in, illness. in canada i think there were eight that were uh, that were claimed to have been the direct cause of COVID, but in that in that age group, in that age group, it was yeah. a nineteen and under. But yeah. but when, once you found out that one well, of them nineteen was, and under, be careful when they say nineteen and under. They're usually talking about very young. Well, th- this this one of the one of the under nineteen happened to be a fourteen year old kid with stage four brain cancer who was in a coma, and they tested him. No right healthy death. kids. Um, no healthy kids get 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 died. So of COVID. My- myocarditis, especially now with the treatments, the treatments work and are good. People are going to say that, uh, and they say it, it's the retort, COVID causes myocarditis. Correct, it does. But, but now, and, and my, my retort to them is, I'm just a lawyer, idiot. Well, then why would you compound the risk of myocarditis by giving them a, a it's, jab it's, that doesn't... It's different, it's different, right? So they need to tease that out. How much is COVID? How much is COVID plus vaccine? How much is vaccine? They need to ask the questions, but just asking the questions will get you canceled as an academic. So, okay, so you need to ask the questions, number one. Number two, yes, it causes myocarditis. All there was just I I've got it on my phone. There's All some, inflammatory there's viruses. There's some long-term studies now on COVID. You know, long-term illnesses and stuff. It all seems to go away at a year. All of it seems to go away at a year. So here we have the vaccine not going away at a year. We have COVID going away at a year. What uh, you know? The, keep studying it, everybody. Let, let's take a good look. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe those studies. You have to reproduce this stuff many, many times before it becomes factual or theory. No facts in medicine. No headlines in medicine. Ugh. So um, uh, you said something that got me going here about the, oh, so here, but there's a but there's a bioethical question here that is that people are missing. It is different to say 
we are taking a finite risk to save somebody from an illness that has consequences versus we are making a healthy person sick with an uncertain benefit. Making healthy people sick is bioethically a violation. Not in all situations, but at its outset. It's a bioethical transgression to make a healthy person sick. And you're definitely not allowed to do it if it's just to help a different person. Potentially help a different person. <laughs> if that's your reasoning, that's a bioethical violation. If it's to help the individual, well, then look at the numbers. Way less than 100,000 versus 20 per 100,000. Wait a minute. This isn't, this doesn't look right. You're going to make healthy people sick to save them from what? And by the way, none of that data took into account good treatments that we have. Okay, there's a problem here. There's a problem. Well, that, that, uh, there it drives me crazy. The, the feedback I get on Twitter, it's, it's so biased. It's so unenlightened. It's so distorted by the people's, people's cognitive dissonance. It's unbelievable to me. And I constantly ask myself, where am I getting it wrong? How am I getting it wrong? I'm, I've got to understand the other side of the table. I must be getting it wrong somehow. I always think this to myself constantly, constantly. How am I, what am I missing? What am I getting wrong? I, I want to know. I want, I want to take that and try to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out for pregnant women right now. I mean, what, there's Vicky Mail presented some great data on on pregnant women and it helping. And I thought, okay, that's good. But it was all from Alpha and Delta. I don't see any recent data on that. Uh, but have you not seen also stats in terms of stillbirths? I, I've uh, seen the data, but it's not in, not well established in the literature. But by there's why there's good literature that says it's safe and effective, so to speak. But by the same token, there was just an article in Lancet a year ago that said. Uh, pregnancy, COVID and pregnancy, time to take a time to breathe easier. It's not an issue, and yet we're uh, still pushing the vaccine. Why? Why are we pushing? No, this is the this is the Lancet. This is the same Lancet that said it was racist to suggest that the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, China. Yeah. That a year, uh, eighteen months later, says it's always been a perfectly plausible theory. I, these institutions have lost not only they've lost the credibility. I just presume that what they're saying is a lie. Yep, and. Um, I, don't a, know, really I don't know crazy. how you come back from it's it. It's crazy. Well, I, I've never been I've never been anti-vax in my entire life. I'm not anti-vax. I am. <laughs> I'm practicing medicine. I'm looking uh, at the risk no, reward I, for just, any treatment at I'm, all times. My elderly patients, all vax, all boosted, all well, in I'm, there. I'm, I'm, I'm my not, 25 year olds. Mm, I'm, I'm, what do you think? I work with them on that. I work with the patient but, but on the that. The thing is, like, I, I'm not anti-vax for what I regard as a vax. I still I will not regard this as a vaccine. Period. I'm old call it the jab because if it doesn't prevent transmission it's, a, look, I'm not, any, it's my opinion so you know yep my opinion anything that stimulates the immune system to fight a pathogen is a vaccine uh, well hold on let, let me ask them the question the reductio to that is vitamin c or vitamin d a vaccine as well then it doesn't stimulate the immune system doesn't create an activation against a specific pathogen to ready an antibody army against that pathogen it doesn't create a, an a, a army of it B does, cells, a, a, to... a, a, a um, clone of B cells ready to go should they see that okay, pathogen. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll digest that because I know the limits of my own knowledge okay, okay. and I, I defer to your expertise. I did just historically take for granted that vaccines were, you know, either made with the, what do they call them? The inactive or the inorganic uh, residual of the, uh, to, in order sometimes, to trigger that response. Sometimes it's just a piece of it. And then I also just assume that vaccines, by the traditional definition, actually prevented infection and not um, reduced severity of symptoms, I which never, I assume was I a never assumed that. Every year we took, gave the flu shot and said, this is our best but guess. They, but, they, but even with the flu shot, you never really called it a flu vaccine. It was called the flu shot for a reason, but the tetanus shot is a vaccine. You, you will never see the flu shot referred to in the literature as anything other than 
the flu influenza vaccine. I'm going to defer to you on this, even though I think I I, I want to disagree with it, but I'm not going to be stubborn in my own ignorance. Flu shot is common lingo. Flu shot is just people um, talk about it that way. Okay, now oh, that was going back to I've never been anti-vaccine in my life, but now yeah. I do question. Like when we, well, what's I have, wrong with questioning? By well, the no, way, I have, so I have three kids, mm -hmm. and I go to our GP. Or what's wrong with questioning well, your medical care with your doctor? So they say here's a, a chickenpox yeah. vaccine. I was like, why would I get a chickenpox vaccine? I had chickenpox. I got shingles as an adult. Maybe if it would have prevented well, that. But the excuse I got, or the explanation was. You can get the flesh-eating virus from scratching the things and the scars. It's almost like, never. I, I know almost so, never. Like, so this is, so when the chickenpox vaccine came around, my kids were little and I wouldn't let them get it because I thought this is a new vaccine. I want to see some more time with this before we understand fully the risk benefits because chickenpox has no risk really. So they well, all got chickenpox. Except chicken pox. for later on in life, uh, shingles. We have a that we have a good vaccine. Now, for. I'm, I'm, now I'm skeptical to take yeah, that one. I don't take it. I took it. It's, <laughs> no, it's dude, a good vaccine. Take the RSV vaccine. I'm it's a good of, vaccine. There's good Drew, vaccines Drew, out there. I'm now scared. I, I was scared of everything to begin with, but now Look, I'm scared. No, there's and no medical intervention that cannot harm you severely. There's there, nothing, no, I agree. That's why I always leave do. myself alone in as there's much as humanly possible. Nothing we do that's not potentially really harmful. Yeah, no, no. I, I the, gave the flu shot to a friend of mine. He had a severe anaphylactic reaction. But this is why I, I, I'm now, uh, well, now that I know of this regulatory capture, now that I know about the fundamental corruption, about the money making that goes yes. on with it, and they say, take yes. this and take that, yeah. I'm skeptical of everything, whereas I wasn't before as much. And you asked what to do with the journals. One of the things RFK Jr. did that caught my attention that I really liked, he said day one, if he was president of the United States, he'd bring the editors of the big three in and go, I'm going to prosecute under the RICO laws unless you unravel this situation because what you're publishing is biased. You And you give me a full report on how you're going to do it or else we're going to court under RICO. I thought, wow. Well, now that they've softened up the RICO rules to go after Trump and gang in Georgia. So now you can really do it. Now you can really go after it. it. <laughs> um, so the most, well, so you're still... I say the most shocking elements that, I am, that I am compromise your medicine trust. the way I always have, which is I'm just trying to do no harm. I'm always looking at the risk reward. I I was raised. My dad was a family practitioner, as I told you, and he reared me on the idea that medications are dangerous, 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 dangerous. You only use them when the risk of not using them is worse. Hammered that into my head. I never had an antibiotic until I was 15. And I remember he actually brought samples of a liquid home of ampicillin. And he, he gave it to me as I'm, all right, because I'd seen a pediatrician, he wanted me to take it. And he was like, here we go. Here we go. God knows what's going to happen to you because of this. You're taking a penicillin. You, you, weren't, you didn't end up being allergic. I did not end up being <laughs> allergic and I didn't end up dead. But, but he was profoundly concerned that I was taking some penicillin. Yeah, profoundly. And that was the orientation I was raised with. So there's got to be a benefit, a clear benefit in taking these risks. Even if you're going to walk through the threshold of my office, you could fall down or so. I, there's got to be a reason, and the benefits got to outweigh the any risks that I that I you incur by interacting with me. I sent you an article before. It was early this morning, so I don't know if you read it. But there, so the the new concern is that they're apparently finding. DNA in some of yeah. the shots, and this I don't understand the I don't understand the impact. It's of that. complicated science. Uh, like, like, let me ask the stupid question. There's DNA. I presume there's DNA in meat that I'm eating. I mean, I know that there is. So, it, it, yeah. The so, idea that so it's this is in, a plasmid that's used in E. coli to create the RNA, 
and it's supposed to be purified out of the vaccine before it goes into your arm. And certain fragments are allowed and certain amount of it is allowed, but it really needs to be highly, highly purified because there are promoter genes within that plasmid that can take that DNA and incorporate it into your DNA. I'm trying, if, to, I'm trying to look smart as I listen if it to can all find of this its way process. The, <laughs> by the way, if it can find its way into the nucleus, which I'm not sure it can. So I'm skeptical of this whole thing, but I'm listening. I'm, I'm, I have stuff I wouldn't listen to before. I'm listening. Uh, but it's clear. And, and the fact that it for a while was being dismissed as, no, it's not. And then, oh, well, yes, there is, but it doesn't matter already has me concerned. Well, that's the standard. It's not happening, but if it is, it's not so bad for you. And right. if it's bad for you, it's less bad than the alternative, and we have right. no choice anyhow. Right. But the alternative now is what? No illness, no hospitalization. Is it a manufacturing There's, issue, or is it a, 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 a is it just it's, a matter it's of fact? It's a manufacturing issue, I think. I've talked to people like Sasha Latipova, and um, I'm blanking on the name of everybody I've talked spoken to, but but they they have had concerns about the size of the of the vats and the way the admixture is going. And then of course we have the Danish study that took two years to be published, which already is suspect. It was a great study that showed that in the early days of vaccine distribution, ten percent of the vaccine was responsible for ninety percent of the adverse reports, and no one has followed up on that. That's weird. We would always follow up on that stuff. Now, the good news is the arrhythmia and the myocarditis, that is breaking into the discussion finally. Finally. Whether or not there is anything real around cancer and DNA plasmids, and we'll see. I don't, I don't think so, but we'll see. I mean, we'll have to see. And now um, you're still living in California. Um, Unfortunately. <laughs> And how does Florida look by comparison? Oh, Florida's the happiest place on earth. And I don't mean Orlando. I mean Southern Florida. We've known that for a long time. Whenever we come down here, people are just so happy. It's crazy. Oh, Dave Rubin's been on me for a while. Like, get down here. What are you doing, you idiot? I thought, I'm too, I've been there my whole life. I, about two years ago, I thought to myself, no, California is worth fighting for. Last six months, I've been thinking, yeah, maybe worth fighting for, but it is impossible. But they're going to be in so much financial trouble soon. You're going to start hearing about massive debt in California that they're going to have to do something. I, mean, I, I thought I'd act. been hearing about that for years, if not a decade. We had a already. surplus. We had a surplus, and they 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 were very irresponsible with that too. But but I never forget talking to somebody on the budgetary committee in the state of California, and she was like, "We're going to have problems. We have you know significant shortfalls." And I go, "Yeah, well, what are you going to do?" Thinking she's going to you know cut the budgets, and she goes, "Well, we can't print money, but the federal government can. They need to print some money and give it to us." And I thought, oh, "You're a you're in the state budget committee. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. And then COVID hit and then we saw what happened and here we are in the inflationary cycle we're in. Now you said childhood trauma leads to addiction. I didn't or, say that. No, sorry, sorry. I didn't want to mischaracterize, but childhood trauma is one of the factors that you know. It's an inciting influence. It's rocket fuel. And if you have bad enough addiction, you need to see me. You had it. Um, looking at the last three years of COVID response. Yeah to a child's development. Oh my God, I, I announced early, we are destroying eight to 15 year olds, destroying them. Because that period of development, they are so dependent on their peers for their sense of being, their sense of well, of, of who they are and how they function in the world. And you're withholding them from that and telling them that your parents and grandparents are gonna die any second. It's just so crazy. It was so crazy. And now what are we seeing? 
you know, the, the incidence like 40% now of serious mental illness, which means they have trouble functioning. Do you know, is there any state breakdown on that? And have some know. states fared better? I'm sure. I mean, this, this it is, has to be, right? This I state look, didn't uh, do it. And this Dr. state Drew, didn't like, lock down. This, this was the number one thought process in my decision to move down to Florida, if only temporarily, is that we were, you know, I'm in Quebec, mm -hmm. five and a half months of curfew. I got three kids under 12 at the time. It's just terrible. And right in a sweet spot age, too. Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah. The, 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 wait, it was, what was it? I mean, I can't remember. How old were they? Four, I give her four, eight seven, to 15, and 10. man. Eight and to 15 no is what we destroyed. No sleepovers, yep. no, like criminalizing, socializing. Yep. I said, this, my kids were in line at a, um, there's no second cup out here, right? It's called, it's like a Starbucks no. for Canada. No. It's crappy coffee, but they're in line. People are fighting because they're not socially distancing enough. And my kids come in the car and they say, there was some man just called an old lady an, an effing bee. I was like, yeah, this is not a normal life for people. Uh, and I do, you know, you hope Florida's I good. hope these kids grow up angry. They should be furious about this. I hope they're angry. Because they, they got to make sure it doesn't happen during their adult life. They should be furious with what was done to them. Well, I can tell you, as a parent uh, of young children at the You're time. You're furious. I'm, I'm furious. I, I, I still, I, I say forgive and forget. I'm not going to forget. I might My forgive. kids are in their, they're just in their early 30s and they were taken down by it. Their, their life was sent off trajectory. I, think, I, see, I don't know when it's even harder. At 30, your, your entire professional development, yep. social life. Yep. How do you date? How do you get married? None how do you find? Uh, people are wondering why men are in trouble right now. Oh my God, we've just, we've hit them with multiple roundhouse punches. Um, now, uh, we won't get into the politics of things, but... Um, I'm, by the way, just so we just stay here on Locals and Rumble, wherever you are, people who, who watch my stream know I am a moderate, moderate, moderate. You cannot call me a conservative, although moderate suddenly becomes like... The label I've given up on moderate, conservative, liberal, it's, yeah. it's red pill and, and blue pill in terms of who still believes the government is up to good and who understands the government I don't to understand. Be. I... I don't even know how to evaluate those kinds of questions anymore, but but I do think we've been through a hysteria. I do not understand people's delight in telling other people how to live their lives, and I do not understand people who want somebody to tell them how to live their life. That, to me, is... I can't get my head around it. Can't get my head around it. Drew, you mind if I take some questions from... I'm going to scroll I mind up very and much. see. Let me see. We I've got, never taken questions before in the media. Well, I, I love it. Except I for 35 years do on the, the radio. Call I don't do the call-ins, but okay. we got... Um, Okay, so it says, Pasha Moyer says, my dad worked with Swedes. He used to tease them with the ditty. 20 Swedes ran through the reeds chased by one Norwegian. That's not a question. What is that? What is um, that? Be careful. Get a screener in here. Somebody read these questions before people get a hold of them. Well, I'm going to see if I got any more questions. Well, Let me, I can look at them. I'm pretty good at reading questions and picking good ones if you want. Well, I, said, no, I, I wanted specific. Well, I'll go to Rumble and see what's going on in the Rumble you chat. You give me that one. and I'll, You look at Rumble and I'll look at that one. Here, you look. Okay, look. look, okay, I'll look at Rumble, be the Rumble rants. I love yeah, these well, guys. I, I can't see any Rumble rants there, but... Um, Hmm. So here's somebody who says, I estimate around 500,000 people have died from the jab. I, I don't, we don't have a number yet. We really don't. Not one, People are saying 250 is, I, well, people, I don't have a number. People do the factor of the various. I don't have a number. Come on. Um, uh, and you're still, you are still prescribing, you're going to get flack for this, but you still believe in the jab for the elderly vulnerable population. I, to be 100% accurate and clear, all of my elderly patients who are, I, see, I, I like to take care of sick people. That's what I've done my whole life. I've seen the human experience, obviously, from in a way that nobody gets anymore. You're not allowed to go to the ICU and the outpatient and the psychiatric hospital as an internist. I did all of it. I saw all of it. I want to share that with people now that I've seen all that. I have been vaccinating my elderly patients. They have done exceedingly well. I've seen, I've not had anybody die. I've not had anybody get any new arrhythmias. I've not had anybody develop myocarditis. 
And nobody, I had one patient die of COVID, or a couple patients die of COVID before the vaccine. Um, there are patients who specifically, I would have predicted, would have done poorly with the, with the illness. Uh, and in the most recent vaccine for the XXXBB.1.5, I'd say half of my patients have asked me to allow them to refuse it. They, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm framing that right. They've come to me and said, should I really take this one? What do you think? When they've, they've told me that, you know what I've said? XBB.1 is gone. There's some evidence that this vaccine has activity for a few months against EG, which is around, but I think that one was probably here this summer. Everything is regionally different in terms of the variants that are around. I don't know that this vaccine is doing anything. I have Paxlovid. Now, that was before it was 1300 bucks. I at least have Moldupiravir still. Uh, and it, it'll work. So, no, I don't think that we really know what we're doing with this vaccine. So, if you don't want to take it, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily because we don't know what we're doing. You've got to open yeah. your phone again for me. The uh, one question here is from Russell. Dr. Drew, have you seen a change among colleagues regarding the efficiency and adverse events of the mRNA program? If so, what percentage would you speculate is for or against the program? What, what do they mean by the program? I'm not sure either. Doctor, have you seen it? So I've seen, colleagues? look, just look at the, how many people are being vaccinated. It's rare now. Yeah. It's rare. Well, it's, it's very few people are taking the vaccine. Let me oh, give me the here, rumble. Here, here, here we go. Okay, do this here. Yeah. Okay. And now I, I, I love, had another I question love, that love came rumble. up uh, anecdotally, and I mm. appreciate it's anecdotal, but that's still, you know, a basis of science. Uh, not among your patients, but among your friends, children, children's friends. Have you noticed any of them have any adverse reactions from, from the jab? Uh, oh, yes. Mostly arrhythmias, arrhythmias, and and uh, but mostly arrhythmias I've seen have been in middle age, like men in their thirties and forties. Seriously, they need the, ablations. The, the, their lives are turned upside down. Now they're not going to have long term consequence, except they have a dangerous procedure to to deal with the rhythm problem. Um, but no, I've not seen a, I've not seen a lot of myocarditis that I can think. I've not seen that age group. You know what I mean? I'm, no, I'm no, not but, but I, that I, age it's group still, so much. It should be telling that it's almost like I think everyone has the equally reflexive of course i've seen a lot of adverse effects a lot i've seen adverse effects among my I, I think to the people i've known you know people in their 40s who've dropped dead within close proximity of the jab uh, an elderly person who nobody knows because old people die all the time yeah. teenagers who got myocarditis and the parents try to convince everybody it's a mild case the old the old saying is there any such thing as mild myocarditis or are you in a position to answer that myocarditis throughout my 40-year career was a dire medical emergency. Whenever my kids got viruses, what I would worry about was them getting myocarditis because it is such a dreadful thing. When people present young with cardiomyopathies, it's because of viral myocarditis. It's a horrible illness. It's horrible mostly because in the acute phase, you can drop dead suddenly. It causes arrhythmias, sudden death, not so uncommon in myocarditis. And the percentage that develop cardiomyopathy is not actually known. So myocarditis, the people when people were dismissing it as, oh, well, no big deal, mild. A, we didn't have the data to say that. And B, never before has myocarditis been dealt with like that. So that to me was odd, and, to and say the, the least. The, um, the reports of myocarditis, whether or not one is going to attribute it to COVID versus the jab, they are in fact undeniably through the roof compared to statistical um, averages. Say that again, that what? The, the, the diagnoses of myocarditis. Well, yeah, now, now Pfizer has it in its package insert. 
it's no longer debate. It's 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 an it's axiomatic. The question of how much. Here we go. You want to give me some anti some some some. You some don't hate? you don't mind seeing hate? Why does Drew continue? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> I've gotten inured to it. It's like it's all the time. Uh, why does he encourage the vax even when evidence showed its toxicity? The one who wouldn't give people any unnecessary meds. Well, let me I've ask seen you this. benefit and no risk. And now you've seen no myocarditis or None. heart issues among the adults. My, when I was growing up, my mom always told us like a young person having a heart attack is more likely to die than an old person because of the alt, what are they, alternate uh, routes of Correct. blood. Correct. She's right. And so collateralization. My mom is an old, she's not a doctor, but she's a neurotic a hypochondriac right. as well. So is that not possibly one of the reasons why you wouldn't notice any, uh, as much myocarditis no, or myocarditis heart issues? No, myocarditis is, is, that's not, that's coronary disease. That's coronary artery disease. Myocarditis is a direct illness of the muscle. Okay, now the, the internet's going to say that I'm a total idiot. I'm, I'm a bad hypochondriac. But, okay, <laughs> so that, that, that plausible, that explanation does, could not possibly Drew shouldn't apply. tell anyone to get a vaccine. Um, well, he's kind of a doctor, so that kind of... I, made... I'm, you know, to be fair, I always make my decisions with my patients. I don't tell anybody to do anything they really don't want to do. Now, if it's super dangerous and they don't want to do it, I might have to refer them to somebody else because I don't want to take that responsibility. But I, I uh, uh, the opioid crisis being one crisis in America, yeah. uh, there is also the overprescription of I believe Still. we would call them psychotropic drugs for children. Is that the word for uh, uh, head, yeah? Head? Psychotropic. I, one of the things I'm going to talk about when I talk to the pharmacist next week or later in the week is deprescribing. There's too much. There's overprescribing. We used to just call it polypharmacy, but old people are on too many meds. That's the way it goes. That's for sure. For sure. Have you seen... Um, Sad that Drew isn't fully awake. Well, I, know, I, I see. I was going to say, it's not that you have not abandoned um, any and all faith. It's that you are operating in a system where you know that you are still one of the good doctors who trusts the science and follows the science in the meaningful way. And you have not lost total faith in the institution because you're still a part of it. From an outside perspective, I have lost faith in the institution and I don't give the benefit of the doubt where I think you still give the benefit of the doubt, A, to medicine and also to the media because... No media to benefit <laughs> well, Do not give them the... They, they are the evil empire. Okay. Yeah. They're the problem. They are the ones brainwashing everybody on either side, everywhere. They're, they're the problem. Um, I have my clinical experience. I read the literature carefully, now with a jaundiced eye, <laughs> I'm talking to people who have been canceled to sort of flush out my understanding of things. And then I'm charged to make the best decision for the patient in front of me. Th these people that were, that are criticizing me are young, healthy people. They're not 80 year olds with 12 different diagnoses for whom the slightest thing can kill them. I am trying to give them the longest possible life and thriving life, life of meaning. I am, it's a, it's a extremely nuanced decision-making position I'm in. Is there an absolute right and absolute wrong? There actually isn't. It's, it's this one, people don't understand this about medicine. It, it, I, the people I argue with are people that are scientists that only read medical literature. There's a reason that the book part of medical school is only two years and the part after the, that is eight to 10 years. That's the residency part? Residency and clinical years and tr fellowship. 
the, on, on average, it's six years minimum, and it's eight to 10 years on average to be able to go out in the world. And even then, when you go out in the world, you're still kind of refining things for the next it's, five to 10 years. It's amazing. You describe it like that. And then I compare it to the practice and the training of law, which is yeah. the exact inversion. It's yeah. three to four years of the books and then yeah. six months of an of a internship or a stage. Yeah. And I, my initial boss said it should be the other way around. You should you should get the experience and then go study so that you can actually understand what you're studying. In in medicine, it sounds it, like that's the way it it's goes. The, it's but the thing about medicine, this is what people don't get. Biology is strictly a giant. It's like predicting the behavior of clouds. It's a probability equation. It's not a linear equation ever. There's nothing that works that way in biology. Everything is a probabilistic all the way down to physical chemistry. It's all where the electron clouds, where are the electrons likely to be. And how are these, how, what are the energy states of these proteins likely to be in certain? There's no, it's always a scattergram. It's always a probability. And that goes all the way up to physiology, where you're trying to make a call based on your experience. The experience informs you far more than the books and the literature. The literature is where you turn to to reinforce your experience and make sure you're seeing this right. But then how have you not lost total faith in the institution when an administrative body comes in and says to doctors, you no longer get to make decisions based on your experience, based on your own expertise of treating a patient as an individual, and it's a one-size-fits-all blanket application? That is a catastrophe. I had no idea that was happening until COVID. And it was a shock to my shock to me to see how many doctors were under that umbrella. It's a shock. And and a lot of it, just so you understand, you, so where does that come from, right? Why is there all this centralization? A lot of that is being done to protect liability. So attorneys again, you should not be involved in the practice of medicine, protecting liability. And the other is to create protocols so we can pull the expensive doctors out and put the nurse practitioners and physician's assistants up front and they can follow the protocols because they're not trained to make those kinds of decisions on their own. They've, they're trained, they're, they're good. I'm, and by the way, they're excellent. I love them, they're wonderful, but it's a different training. It's more about protocol and that's cheaper. And the insurance companies love that and the government loves that. So here we go. Um, now, I don't wanna get the political part of this. Um, are you optimistic for the future there, of there America? Are, this whole thing is created. I'm getting involved with organizations and delivery systems that are popping up all over the place. My son was just texting me about some more of the telemedicine organizations and the, the wellness company. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting involved in fitness. You know, Susan made me talk about the... Um, V-shred, this thing we've lost 15 pounds, and we're I'm getting involved in all these other things that are popping up, and there's we're finding there's an, a hungry market of people who want something different. They want this different old the way doing things on the patient's behalf to make them better and healthier and stay healthy. It's there's an incredible opportunity here if it keeps happening. The, so I'm kind of optimistic about that. At least I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying that there are people there ready to hear alternative ways of doing things that are not encumbered, that are more about health and wellness. And and by the way, even on the sort of supplement side, which I was always very skeptical about, well, there's some good data on some of this stuff. There's some things I'm going to get involved with that are like, oh my God, this data looks fantastic. I'm taking these things myself and giving them to my family because it's like there's stuff happening. And it, this has accelerated all that, I think. And so there's there's a reason to be somewhat optimistic about this. Uh, now I just forgot the last question I was going to ask. Hold on, I'm going to look. I'm going to look for 
a question to distract me from this. Okay. Uh, don't want to get politi political politics ruins everything. Oh, that was the question. I'm sorry. Oh, have ruining you, everything? No, well, uh, ruining everything. Have you um, felt backlash? I mean, you're sort of, I won't say, you know, it's not milk toast and it's not fence sitting. You're more circumspect and... I'm Wait, just doing what I always have. There's have nothing you, different have, about what I'm doing. But have but, you have oh, you been out blackballed? Oh outcasts? yes. Oh my God, yes, of course. Okay. And, and my favorite criticism: I used to admire you. It's like really that shame, that type of but, guilt but and shame is. It's like how fucking grandiose <laughs> do you fucking have to be to say something like that to anybody? I would never say that to somebody. I used to admire oh, you, but now, oh my God, you've changed. I have not changed one bit. That's the thing. I'm doing what I've always done, but now it's really being called for on 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 a on an acute, you know, uh, razor's edge to use what I've developed over 40 years. And and I'm I, I just know what I know what I know. I've done what I've always done that this way, and it's it's, it's been a, a, a you know pressed in steel to this point. And I can be wrong about things for sure, and I'm prepared to be wrong all the time. But but I, there's some things I know, having been through so much, that I'm, I need to share with the world. I used to admire you so much. That think how you know. The, to me, one of the great, aside from dividing anybody, everybody into impressors and impressing, which now how I kind of understand the left's point of view on that. I, I, I that once you understand that frame, it helps you understand the, what they're saying. Um, but oh shit, was the other thing I was going to say about. Um, it was on the issue of admiring, being admiring somebody. No, admiring grandiose. Somebody. You have to be to say oh, you once admired the, the, someone. One of the great, the great viruses of our time is grandiose caring. I cares. I cares. That is narcissism and grandiosity full on. I was at a presentation recently, and there was a comedian up there, and he'd he'd been a drug addict forever, and he used a term that was derogatory, considered derogatory. It used to be axiom just routinely used but it was about a gay lesbian transgender person and it was just a just a term that we don't use anymore i'm and, trying to are you allowed i'm not going to gonna even, say okay. it i'm not going to say it because I, because it because it misses the point well and also someone's going to snip and clip it and just yeah. and they play that over and i'll try to figure it out afterwards okay the the uh, somebody behind me was like boo, boo uh, you you're you're just screaming at the guy and i thought wow if you actually cared about the language that guy used you would go up to them after the event and go, hey, man, I know you were using drugs that whole time, but we just don't use that word anymore. It really offended. It hits wrong. I, I know you don't want to be seen that way. And maybe we change that. That's caring. That's caring. No, this but is it, not caring. That's pure narcissism. Well, that, and, this and, is, and, but are we, are we not living through a time, and I don't want to use the term flippantly, Narcissism. I, well, no, I'm like well, not institutionalized, but rather just uh, democratized mental illness, where we are actually either not diagnosing or actually fomenting what would otherwise be clinically diagnosable mental disorders, or, or, or not treating, valorizing. What time is it? Yeah, well, it's one thirty-seven, and we can't. I don't know how much longer we can go, but. Yeah. Uh, because I, I mean, so here's the, the deal. Overprescribing, we are conditioning people to have what would otherwise be diagnosable mental illnesses. Wow. In my humble opinion, as a neurotic. <laughs> and hypochondriac. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, you you got to be careful with the terms we toss around, right? Th there's depression and anxiety that... Um, what was the famous phrase that Freud said when he arrived in the United States? A reporter put a microphone in his head, in his mouth, in his face, and said, Dr. Freud, what do you help to establish here in, in the United States? He goes, well, well, I'd like to understand the difference between serious mental illness and ordinary misery 
ordinary misery is part of life and it's important to experience ordinary misery and a component of ordinary is misery depending on our genetic makeup creates anxiety and depression and grief and maybe some acting out behaviors and maybe some alcohol use and smoking some weed and things all kinds of things still ordinary misery until it becomes protracted and it affects functioning well the, but and that is where i really think on a diagnosable scale we are at a place where it is impeding functioning proper functioning in a civil society well but hold on now so okay so i watched the narcissistic turn happen in real time is another thing i experienced in real time so when i first got to the psychiatric hospital and i was moonlighting i would always read the admission sheets and the diagnosis codes for the personality disorders was all over the place i saw all kinds of personalities and somewhere in the late 80s it started cluster it started zeroing in on cluster b narcissist borderline sociopath particularly borderline at that point uh and then by the 90s it was all cluster b only only and, and primarily narcissistic disorders i just i watched it happen in real time and I, and I could kind of see it and i thought oh that's all the trauma it's all the childhood trauma which are called narcissistic what, injuries what was the childhood trauma of the 60s 70s 80s what, what i think it was i think it, i think it was two things simultaneously the devaluing of families and marriage so there's a lot of abandonment chaos divorce all the seven kids are fine they're resilient they're, they're like little adults screwed up kids uh, a lot of substance use came in during that period think of the 60s the summer of love stuff a lot of drug abuse in family systems and then the sexual revolution where hey kids are just little sexual beings too if they if they want sex from an adult that's that's on the kid you still hear that shit from Nami and Nambly we're and stuff. hearing that more yeah, and more these yeah. days that's <laughs> that's that is disgusting stuff and so I saw it come then I started thinking I wrote a book about narcissism because it was so pervasive it was just everywhere and we did some studies on narcissism and lo and behold it's up it's up it's up and uh and I started thinking God where in history has there ever been this much childhood trauma and this much narcissism and the only thing I could come up with was pre-revolutionary France and I actually wanted to write a chapter about it in my book on narcissism and they told me it was too speculative and I kept saying that there's going to be when there's a lot of narcissism there's a lot of aggression flying out through the mob and the mob will form and focus its aggression and scapegoat so they don't tear each other apart that's how narcissists work in a mob we, we might be witnessing a lot of that in real time so, currently so i kept saying they're going to be guillotines the guillotines are coming out i know it they're going to come out i didn't know anything about social media i didn't know about cancel culture and that's the modern guillotine and i will tell you because i've done I become obsessed with revolutionary France because of this. There's a mathematical certainty that when you bring out a guillotine, you will end up on the guillotine. That seems to be a mathematical feature of history. So prepare yourself, everybody. Unless you calm this thing down, it it eats everybody. Was it Lenin or somebody said the, rev the revolution devours its own children? Correct. And there's the other one which says uh, the members of the party just end up being the last ones on the wall. Um, no, nobody escapes it. There's, it's, there's no question. I, we're seeing it in real time. The only question is what happened? I mean, when they talk about the fall of Rome and say, well, I, okay. I don't it, like the fall of Rome. I know, no, I know. It as an analogy, it's, 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 it's overused and also maybe uh, abused. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, like something happened. Something existed after Rome. So what happens after the fall of what we refer to as the West now? What would be the, what would be the future of the fallen West? 
Uh, I don't know what it looks like, but... Um, well, Michael Malice says it's going to be 50 independent states in this country. Yeah, well, that's... Have and, and you interviewed it, him yet? Oh, yeah. For, no, no, I have not interviewed yeah. Michael, but I met him a couple of times. You I, read, I read the book. I read The White Pill. My God, that White uh, Pill. And I'm yeah, reading, no, I'm I, reading I, a Lenin biography, and you sort of see where that all came from. It's like, oh, my oh, God. Well, cool when arts. I ran into him, I said, oh, the, the White Pill, your White Pill was a, was a troll. The White Pill was that 80 million people have to die horrible, horrible deaths in order for people to realize what, you know, the right and the wrong. Um, I don't think we need to do that. <laughs> I, the, the balkanization of America could be, you know, uh, the, the state divorce, maybe. I, I wonder. I don't see it. I, don't, I think, think the only people that ever say that don't understand the logic of the Civil War. The, 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 the federal government, this one, we've lost track of. Federal government was for one reason, to form a more perfect union of the states. It is a collaborative contract. It's not a contract that can be unilaterally broken. If it's broken by one, the whole must bring them back into alignment. That's why Abraham Lincoln always called them the Confederate States, so-called, because they were in insurrection. There's no such. There's no. Andrew Jackson had a had a uh, a what do they call it? Crisis where they where they secession crisis. He was the first to invoke that logic that there is no ability within our constitutional framework for a state to leave the union. It's an insurrection at that point and it must be put down. And anyone who talks about the balkanization doesn't know that history so well. Well, I mean, it might they, just be they more go, of a, you know, a de facto where you're going to end up having the, you know, the, the people the, who are fed up moving from California that's to Florida. Happen. That's and the people who want uh, And then there's going to be economic catastrophes in certain areas. Well, someone actually just said, how could the richest uh, state in the union uh, have the most homelessness? And and, uh, because they created laws that make it impossible for us to treat them. I could take care of this in six months. No problem. I know exactly where to put them. I know how to build the program. I know how to staff it. I know exactly what we would do. We would save six deaths a day in L.A. County. We would save. I know exactly what to do. It's not hard. You need to first get doctors and nurses involved in their open air hospitals. Those are hospitals they're running and they're having social workers run the hospital. They're not trained for that. It's just disgusting. Oh my God, it's so disturbing. It's um, so, as those are my patients out on the street. Well, the, 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 uh, this, have you thought about ever getting into politics if you would yes. ever wish that? I came very close to running for governor during the um, recall of, of Newsom. I'm, I'm glad I didn't. Susan is saying no. She's an absolute no, no, well, no. But now that you've seen, I, I just keep saying I got to do something. I got to do something. I just see. I feel like I got to do something. <laughs> My something now is just getting involved in these telemedicines and different different ways of delivering healthcare and stuff. That's that's my solution. I, that's I, I don't. I don't think good I, people survive in politics. I, I went. I think you're right. However, I went so far as talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger about this. It was one of the best conversations I've ever had with anybody in my entire life. What an extraordinary man. He's a good person. He survived politics. Well, I, he, he made. He, he you may made, not agree with him. Nobody made a mistake about screw your freedoms and stay that's at home fine. and smoke that's your fine. cigars. He, your... He's, I, he doesn't mean he, don't make the mistake of thinking that makes him a bad uh, no, person. No, no, I, I, he's I mean, a wonderful him, person. Have you watched his? Have you watched his documentary? Uh, no. Please watch the. It's three hours. Please watch it. I'm an, I'm asked nothing else of oh, you. No, oh, a, a thousand percent. It's on Netflix. And, and, and it's a, I, I hold a grudge, but that's not an unforgivable mistake. Like 
other mistakes from politicians are he unforgivable. Did, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, it and was by the, the way, luxury. Of the I don't think he would have sustained that the way it was sustained no, in Florida, well, no, and, and also, in California, rather. But also, people at some point in time become victims of their own, I don't use the word privilege, but victims of their own circumstance. For him, it wasn't so bad and just stay at home, but you try to lock three kids in a house and I, Look, I know, and I understand what it was doing to people. I saw it. But, uh, you know, what I, the other thing I saw was DeSantis's symposium he held with the Nobel laureates and stuff down here to try to decide whether he should lock down. And I watched that whole symposium and I, Bhattacharya was one of the people that presented and he said, you know, DeSantis devoured all the literature we gave him. He understood it. He asked great questions. He made a decision based on what we were telling him. And it, we had a discourse, a scientific discourse, and he made his call. And it was the right call. No, and, and the, the stupidity which drives me nuts is, you know, the, the, Cali the Gavin Newsom say, oh, California did X percentage better in terms of deaths. Like, no. oh, it, it, even mm. if it's true, the Florida was in the middle, California was three up. What did you sacrifice for that marginal benefits? People are running away screaming. That's not going to be generationally They're, suffering down the line. People are running away screaming from California. They can't get out. Well, I, I, it's, it's I would the, get out if I could. Mm. I would go to Tennessee. I would go to Florida. I, I, Tex well, I mean, Texas is right Texas, next door. I do spend a lot of time, and I'd spend a lot of time out of California, so that's probably why I'm, yeah. I'm okay with it. But, you know, one of the places I spend a lot of time is New York City, right? And, and it's very I'm, similar to New York, I'm, to California, except mm -hmm. one thing. There's one thing very different about New York. You get so much for the taxes you pay. You you see it. You use it. It's all yeah, around you. Well, you. you th that's one you, way of viewing California it. California is the opposite. You get nothing for the taxes you pay. Well, I mean, I say what, what, you, what you get in New York for the taxes you pay is a well-run urban prison, in my view. But it, it's it's. I love it. It, it. I I have not gone. I went back once since COVID. It was when they had the vaccine passports. Yeah. yeah. I didn't. I mean, I'm again, you know, fearing everything. I, I didn't feel oh. safe. I don't think I want to go uh, back. There, it's different. Yeah. It's no. Different no. It's, it's and plus I need green and fresh air. California, mm -hmm. I see for what you waste in taxes, you make up for in natural beauty. It's the and most, that's how they get away with it. I, well, there's no that's, question. It's it's the most geographically beautiful That's state. how they get away with it. Newsom was on Adam Carolla's show and he was like, where are you going to go? Where are people supposed to go? You know, so where else, where else do you get Utah, this? Utah's beautiful, but well, I don't know what life so in funny. Utah he goes, is like. He goes, he goes, I know a family packed up and went to Salt Lake City. They love it. He goes, Dude, what's the point you're making? They love Salt Lake City. <laughs> they got out of your godforsaken state. What do you say? No, it's 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 beautiful. It, people will deal with the awfulness, of the high taxes, because it's, it's geologically. It's you have the beach, I know, you have I know, the mountains. It's amazing, but hmm. it's um. You pay a price. I when I when I got it. You know, when I got my kids have to move. My, my thirty year olds can't possibly live there. Yeah, it's, 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 when, when I was at a gas station yeah. and it, in seven the time bucks. I couldn't figure out how to. Oh, that was the seven bucks was one thing. Couldn't figure out how to open up the gas thing, and I'm getting approached by people who are clearly on drugs and, mm -hmm. and it's it felt like a zombie town and i didn't mm -hmm. feel good it is zombie town dr drew we 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 stayed longer than we can here way long uh, okay remind everyone again one more time hold on okay so here's what i want all you to do all of your all of your stuff you got first sure. october 28th san jose convention center in san jose me rfk junior asim malhatra Shiva, what's her last name? She, I don't know her. She's a food. Uh, uh, no, her friend, it's Vandana, Dr. Vandana Shiva. Vandana Shiva, who's a capture. The family food's been captured too. I, I want to hear mm -hmm. what she has to say. I, I want to hear it. I may not agree with them, but I think you got to hear what these people have to say. It's important that we hear the canceled. My God, they, there's, there's. I've learned so much talking to people that other people don't agree with. I, that's what science is. That's what, that's what human interaction is about. I mean, talking science. to people science you agree is with is very... It's a discourse. Look, Galileo was a misinformation advocate. He was seen by the Spanish Inquisition to be dangerous. He was saying that God created a universe that didn't revolve around the earth. 
This man must be exiled. Galileo, Copernicus, Einstein, until the Copenhagen synthesis. This is some nut from uh, from Switzerland. He's some nutty clerk. Some nut with some crazy idea. Who is this asshole? This could put him get no. Today he would have been silenced. This is anathema to how science is done. It's always the people that are on the fringes that bring the new ideas in. You don't have to agree with them just because they say them. You can listen to them respectfully, by the way. You don't have to attack them and just and then move on, move on to something else. But anyway, uh, and by the way, the more you suppress that, the more people's paranoia goes up. Absolutely. 35 years but, on a psychiatric but, but, cost, everybody. You want to create paranoia? You suppress these positions. But people believe that that's exactly why they're doing it. It is to so absolute <laughs> distrust and discord of the entire system because a divided population Correct. is easy to govern over. Correct. Ugh. Uh, I'm not going there. So uh, October 28th, be there at the San Jose Convention Center. Also, 12 p.m. 12 Pacific time in yeah. San Jose. Tickets are at drdrew.com forward slash RFM Romeo Foxtrot Mama. It's uh, restore food and medicine or result. What is it? Reclaiming food and medicine. RFM Reclaiming food and medicine. It's drdrew.com forward slash RFM. Then in New York City at about eight o'clock, November six at eight thirty p.m. At the Chelsea Music Hall with Cat Timpf, that's T-I-M-P-F, Jimmy Fiala, uh, the uh, and the Gutfeld Show. Tickets at yeah. drdrew.com forward slash NY comedy. Forward slash drdrew.com forward slash NY comedy. And do check out drdrew.tv and drdrew.com. drdrew.tv especially for the streaming show. And I will try to get Jim Norton. Jim, if you're listening, I'm going to get you for the uh, uh, Chelsea Market Show. So see. I love that guy. Dr. Drew, so. thank you very much. We have another hour drive back. I'll ask you about my personal medical questions on the way. Thank oh, you very much joy. for coming. <laughs> happy to do it. <laughs> but I might as well have my... a stroke because this stuff upsets me so much. No, the, it's, the, no, it's it's. it's uh, but now I've I've. Everyone says it's a good thing. I've gotten to the point where I will go to a doctor only when I'm hunched over. In well, that's always good. We we if you come to us enough, we'll hurt you. Because that's, like I told my dad, like, just stay away from the doctor unless you need us. You have to come to us. And uh, going, medicines are not going to make your life better. They're only going to help you when it's not ordinary misery and it's a dangerous condition that's affecting your functioning. And we can maybe bring, restore you back to something like health. But not without risk. Always risk everything we do. Everything. Amazing. All right. We, uh, everybody, I don't know what the schedule for the week is, but there'll be other good stuff coming. Dr. Drew, thank you very much. Pleasure. Everyone out there, you know where to find him. See you on the interwebs, and uh, we're going to end this. On the interwebs? Just, on the interwebs is my um, word for the internet. Oh, it's, by the way, let me just say something before we close it all off. It's so such a pleasure to meet Viva Fry. It's one of the reasons I came down here is to see him in person, because I'm just inspired by you... Uh, Walking the walk and not just talking the talk. You've got I've, the hell I've lost, I lost my mind. So this, the, 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 my filter is done, and uh, the world has gotten too crazy to stay silent. It's I, I called Aristotle. Gad sad yesterday because he was being threatened and stuff. And I'm yeah, like, I, I feel like people need to kind of stick together and I, no, meet I, each I, other, I, enjoy I, each other, and share ideas and to keep this thing going forward because th there is something wrong. We're sick. We're not well. It, it is. Um, it's a society. We have problems as a society. We're being fragmented into ever smaller and smaller pieces of shrapnel. Let's get it together. Uh, and it's like it's like it's broken glass. I mean, it's a broken glass, and you can't walk. Those of you who are at me for for vaccinating my elderly patients, to my best judgment, don't don't let's not not be friends. 
You know what I mean? We can still listen to each other. I'll still listen to you. You listen to me. I'm happy to do that. I think, but and I say focus on the the real I, enemy, for lack of a better word, but the real the um, media guys. Problem. Watch the media. Well, it's the media They're brainwashing with, with the, you. The media with the government. I mean, it's all. It's all. That it's, is the infrastructure. It's brainwashing. Read your history. You read your history. This has happened before, many well, times. And we'll see how it ends this time. Doctor Drew, we can do better. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone out there. Enjoy the day.